Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. All right, welcome to a special crossover episode. I'm here with uh, Sam Biagetti of Historians Planning Podcast, and uh, I'm Jeff Schulenberger. Um, and I'm I'm Sam Biagetti, who creates Historians Planning. And uh, we have been corresponding about uh, a book, David Graeber and David Wengrow's um, The Dawn of Everything. And that's what we'll be talking about today, kind of trying to offer a broad critical assessment of it from our sort of dual perspective. Um, I like Graeber and Wengrow. I am not a historian. Sam is a historian. Um, and I'm, you know, generally as the podcast, uh, you know, title and sort of concept implies sort of, you know, generally sympathetic to sort of outsiders making illicit forays into other disciplines and things like that. Um, so I don't have any, uh, you know, critique of a sort of historical project, um, undertaken by an anthropologist and archaeologist respectively in, in principle. Um, but as we'll get into, I think there are ways that a, a historian's perspective on what they're trying to do is, is quite, um, valuable and necessary. Um, so in any case, uh, thanks Sam for being willing to uh, talk about this and for, uh, you know, taking up my suggestion of reading this kind of long and <laughs> somewhat rambling book. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was Jeff's idea to have this, uh, major crossover event. And, uh, I think it's great because I love outsider theory and I, people were asking about this book anyway. So I figured it, it was, it would be a good experience to have a two way conversation about it. Yeah. And I mean, so one, I, I suppose one reason I immediately thought of you is that the, um, the sort of concept of your podcast is a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong, if I'm getting that. Right. Prison correct. <laughs> so, I mean, clearly this, this project is conceived of in similar terms to that, right? It's, it's a kind of strong revisionist project, right? That tries to offer a fundamental reassessment of certain, some, not just sort of specific historical claims, but assumptions underlying uh, the way that a great deal of history is, is done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would add also whole fields like economics, I think are built on sort of primordial myths that they're setting out to debunk, uh, for, for better or for worse. Right. And this, um, sort of continues in the tradition of Graeber's previous major book, Debt which is also a sort of historical narrative um, about, you know, the origins of debt, money, um, you know, economics and various other things, which, which, you know, the main sort of selling point of debt was 
he goes back to this myth of barter, right? This idea that sort of before you had money, you just had people kind of awkwardly figuring out how to trade um, uh, vaguely equivalent commodities with each other. And that this, you know, if, if you read sort of standard economic textbooks, this is adduced as the reason why sort of money has to be invented, right? So there's a sense of inevitability because the other ways in which people might exchange goods are, are just too awkward and cumbersome and therefore, you know, some more efficient means of exchange has to be devised. So this, you know, debt is basically taking aim at that set of assumptions. And I think, again, you know, there, there are some wit and I don't want to get too involved with discussing that book, which is a whole other can of worms, but, you know, I think that's a fundamentally very valuable and salutary project. Um, and I think he is successful at, undermining this basic assumption of economics, right? That, that in order to have sort of, um, uh, you know, sustainable economies of exchange, you have to have money, right? Because basically his critique yeah. is premised on the notion that in fact, um, you know, it, in anthropology, it's, it's sort of recognized that you have um, the gift economy, right? That, that you have modes of exchange that don't, um, that don't require, a sort of um, exact equivalence, but instead are are embedded in in social relationships, right? Yeah, and I currently have just read the first half of Debt. I have not read all of it, and I think it's the full title is Debt: The First Five Thousand Years. So maybe I've only gotten about the first two thousand five hundred years, but it strikes me there there are similarities, certainly in style. I sort of reading. Reading debt, I said, oh, okay, those weird quirks in the style of Dawn of Everything must be Graeber. <laughs> um, but the, the strength of it is similar, which is, I think, tackling, you know, fundamental sort of assumptions about how social structure is built and trying to reveal how they are not just, um, natural results of the fundamental nature of the world, they are the results of power, of the exercise of power. And, you know, money, you can think of money, money has its social power because the image of the ruler is stamped upon it, right? And there's a deep connection between sovereignty and money. And there, and I think Graeber and Wengro are trying to kind of, you know, uh, broaden their attack to sort of the whole idea of social structure and hierarchy and the state and show how those are all kind of uh, the results of the exercise of power and not just natural predetermined results of the natural progression of humankind. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so this, right. There's sort of this general critique of, of sort of deterministic accounts of, you know, societal evolution. So that the interest is in saying essentially, which, you know, again, I think is, is usually a worthwhile um, pursuit is to, to take something that is, that is simply assumed to be the inevitable outcome of, of certain um, prior historical developments and argue that in fact it did not have to be that way, right? And that there is there is um a greater variety and range of possible, you know, modes of social organization than than is usually assumed. Right. So again, you know, with debt, th- this really starts with thinking about money. And as you're saying, this this book I think 
I mean, it, it begins with a question about inequality, right? But, and, and in their accounts of how the project evolved, it begins, it begins with them trying to think together about this question of inequality, which is both what, um, you know, what, what also animated Graeber in, in debt, but also, um, his involvement in the Occupy movement and things like that. But at the same time is, is a sort of fundamental question that's raised at the kind of outset of modern thought, right? Which is, you know, in the Enlightenment, you had this, um, concern explored by Rousseau and others with the origin of inequality, right? How, how do societies become unequal? And so as, as we'll perhaps get into, they sort of end up deciding that this is the wrong question, but in a sense, they're returning to this fundamental question that kind of stands at the outset of modern, you know, philosophical, anthropological, historical, and economic thought, right? And trying to, you know, not only, um, offer a different answer, but sort of question some of its fundamental premises. Right. And, 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 and this is, you know, to put it simply something like the, the basic idea that there is some moments that is defined by equality, which is then succeeded by some sort of fall from grace and the emergence of inequality is, mm-hmm. is the, the narrative, the, the, the sort of narrative structure that they want to take issue with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and they, uh, you know, they, they, want to reframe this debate and they say that, well, this obsession with uh, how we went from a perfect, equal, utopian past as primitives and then went into this unequal, uh, urban, civilized world, that that is like a repetition of the myth of of Eden and and the literal fall of man. And, uh, And I think that they, I mean, I don't know how far we want to get into sort of evaluating the book but i think that they they make that case pretty strongly and a lot of their strength is just that they have been exposed to so much current research and scholarship and they're kind of enthusiastically drawing in all of these examples and counterexamples and really i think pretty effectively debunk that assumption that sort of small you know, hunter-gatherer societies are egalitarian, whereas larger organized urban societies are hierarchical or authoritarian. Um, and they, like you're saying, they sort of pull this in in a sometimes not totally clear way. You know, I think a lot of their arguments and sub-arguments get kind of convoluted, uh, but they pull it into this broader meta-claim that the real question is not equality versus inequality. The real question is how you preserve personal freedoms, right? And that's what we should really be concerned about, which, um, you know, on a conceptual level, I was like, all right, maybe that's a valid kind of reorientation, but it's also quite convenient, right? (laughs) Especially if you belong to a a higher stratum of society, uh, it's very nice to be able to say, stop worrying about equality and inequality. That's the wrong question. We really should be thinking about personal freedom. And, uh, you know, and they put this great emphasis on the importance of intellectual freedoms and the ability to take part in debates and that this is sort of fun, a fundamental 
part of our essence as humans, that we take part in intellectual and political debates about what sort of what society should look like. And they really uh, enshrine that as kind of an ultimate value. And, you know, that's a fair, valid point of view, but it also makes a lot of sense for two guys who are academics and self-conceived intellectuals that they sort of see that as like the highest uh, value and, you know, don't pay, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Don't worry about material economic inequality. Right. And, the, you know, in some ways, this is sort of an odd and surprising um, approach from someone like Graeber, right, who's heavily associated with Occupy and with, you know, I mean, with coining this notion of the 99% and the 1%. Um, and so, you know, if, if you think about how his, his contributions are, are sort of popularly understood prior to this book, they're very much centered on the, the issue of inequality, right? Whereas, whereas what he does here is sort of unbundle various, um, I'd say sort of elements and perhaps aspects or different types of inequality and argue that, you know, essentially you can have, um, you can have social organizations that are, for example, somewhat hierarchical or partly hierarchical while being sort of materially relatively equal. And then you can have kind of all sorts of different combinations of those, right? And this is, again, based largely on anthropological and archaeological evidence. And so they, I mean, and this is, I think the thing that, the thing that's kind of tricky about this book and I, and I did want to kind of start with maybe the more, the, the aspects of it that we appreciate more. Um, mm -hmm. so, so kind of going back to your, your initial assessment, um, you know, so part of their argument is that, um, you know, if you, if you actually look at the record, particularly based on sort of more recent archaeological discoveries, what you'll find is that there's not a clear linear succession as is often, as has often been proposed. Right. And as you find, um, kind of recapped in, in popular, uh, books like, uh, Guns, Germs and Steel and Sapiens more recently, that, you know, essentially you have a sort of early phase in which humans live in these small hunter gatherer groups, right. And are, are essentially foragers and, and hunters. Um, in which they are sort of materially poor, although that is, you know, th th there's sort of, I mean, there's sort of some com complexity here because, you know, you have sort of two different ways of thinking about this. The, the standard one is that they're materially poor and their lives are nasty, brutish, and short, right, as in Hobbes. But then there is a sort of revisionist version of this evolutionist idea, which sort of inverts it. Which interestingly, the most, um, the, the most influential version of this on me was written by, uh, David Graeber's doctoral advisor, Marshall Salins, called The Original Affluent Society, right? In which he argues mm -hmm. that, um, in fact, if you look at hunter-gatherer groups that can be directly, or at least when he was writing in the 60s and 70s, could be sort of directly observed and studied, you know, what you find is that they have a relatively leisurely existence in part because they have learned how to make use of the resources that surround them as, as efficiently as possible. So in other words, what might look like material poverty from our perspective is in fact an incredible resourcefulness at um, making use of what the environment, what the environment they live in provides to them. Right. And so in fact, the work of foraging, once you become, or, or if you are expert at um, 
you know, identifying the right kinds of plants and seeds and so on is is actually not particularly demanding compared to the types of work that emerge at later stages. So anyway, there's sort of this two, you know, and this basically recaps the sort of Hobbes versus Rousseau hunter gatherers is nasty brutish and short versus a sort of noble savage idea. Um, Salins isn't really offering a noble savage idea, but he is offering a kind of positive reevaluation of the potentialities of hunter gatherer existence, right? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, regardless of which of these, you know, um, perspectives you take on this, you know, phase of humanity living in small bands and so on, um, the story goes, you know, at some point there's a discovery of agriculture, right? And in this more positive evaluation of hunter-gatherer life, which you find, for example, in uh, Yuval Harari's Sapiens, right? And he's, I think, drawing on Salins. Um, you know, he represents the the um, discovery of agriculture as the um, as a luxury trap, right? Where basically your your capacity to produce agricultural surpluses does not equate to, and and in fact equates ultimately to a lower standard of living for most people, because it um, first of all increases the population, but therefore um, requires more work to feed the growing population and also makes you more um, vulnerable to things like drought um, or other and kinds diseases. of blights that, and, and, and also that it, it brings people living together in, in sort of, you know, more crowded urban settings than therefore, you know, brings about various kinds of diseases um, and the original sort of plagues and things like that, which would have been much, much less likely in, when humans were living in smaller bands, at least so the story goes. So this is, you know, and and then basically, um, you know, from there, humans have sort of already fallen, have, you know, either undertaken this inevitable step forward towards greater progress and material abundance, if you take one version of the story, or have fallen from grace into this luxury trap from which they can never escape, right? And that's that's essentially the version you find in Harari's Sapiens, um, mm-hmm. so basically their, you know, their central contention is that we have to scrap, you know, both of these, um, accounts, which, which even though they seem to be opposed actually have the same implications, which, which are these kind of deterministic assumptions about human history. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me the best I can understand is that once you got this insight from Salins, uh, which, allows you to reevaluate and say, maybe this whole agricultural revolution was a mistake, right? That's sort of an idea that has gotten out into intellectual circles that maybe this was all a trap. Uh, that, I think, set the stage then for James C. Scott and Against the Grain, where he tries to put some daylight and some separation between the the innovation of agriculture and then the rise of all these horrible things of war and authoritarianism. And he argues that, no, there were thousands of years where people farmed in different ways and experimented with it. I think he maybe even uses this word play, which like shows up constantly in Dawn of Everything. Like it's like one of their main buzzwords. But but Scott sort of wants to separate those things out and say, no, you can practice agriculture and get certain benefits from it. And it doesn't necessarily 
lead to the rise of authoritarian societies and all this, you know, all this misery, right, is the implication. But it makes it possible because once you're growing grain, you can stockpile it. You know, you have to harvest it at one time of year. You stockpile it in huge granaries. And then, you know, basically some glorified marauder is going to come and demand a share of it. And and the state, you know, the state arises as a kind of glorified protection racket. Or he, he even says even worse. They're just like they're just bandits who just want to entrap people and exploit them. And and hence, then you get these big, awful states and empires. And Graeber and Wengro, it seems, are trying to even then push a step beyond James C. Scott and say, no, you can even have a big urban society. And even then, it can work along egalitarian lines. They do use that word a few times. And and it can work in, you know, consensual, by consensual cooperative governance. You can have, you know, and they talk about, oh, these cities in Sumer had neighborhood committees and, you know, there was no sort of ruling uh, tyrant. And they they sort of cast, you know, it's almost utopian, right? It's borderline utopian, but they're kind of casting some of these early urban agricultural societies as kind of like little anarcho-syndicalist cooperatives, right? And and they're trying to tell us, see, we can have those nice things, even at the same time that we have cities and art and literature and all these things we like, we can do it in this more kind of cooperative, consensual, non-authoritarian way. Yeah, and I think, you know, this, so, you know, it often seems like what they're presenting is this kind of combinatory matrix where you sort of have all these different elements of a society, right? And that what they're, what they're trying to claim is that you can sort of combine and recombine them and, and sort of unbundle them in different kinds of ways, right? So, um, you know, whereas this, this previous model assumes that there's kind of a, a lockstep um, adoption of certain social forms as, you know, say the economic mode of production shifts and they, you know, heavily critique the notion that there even is a mode of production, right? That, that the mode mm-hmm, of production mm-hmm. is a, is a useful framework. And by the way, you know, this, um, you know, again, part of why I thought of you in relation to this is like, it does remind me a little bit of what you do in your podcast in these myths of the month where you'll take some kind of organizing concepts and try to kind of, unpack it and show how it, you know, may conceal a much messier reality and might, um, might sort of reify something that is, that is actually far more ambiguous. So, you know, I think what they're doing here is quite interesting because what they're saying is that there are these kinds of, um, abstractions, right, that, that actually, um, oversimplify, you know, a range of social forms by, by assuming that all of these things necessarily go together, right? Absolutely. And, and I think that, I mean, a section of the book that I was already inclined to agree with, but nonetheless, I really thought was strong was their basically their dismantling of the concept of the state. You know, and I think they have a chapter that's just called why the state has no origin. And I was like, you know, right from the get go, I was like, I'm on board with this. But still, I think they did it very well, illustrating how there are very different ways for elites to create and exercise power. 
and that they these things can operate often independently of one another. There's no one moment where you say, aha, now we have a state and it has a ruler and a bureaucracy and law code, etc. These things can can form and, and come and go independently of one another. And, you know, they had they had the sort of wealth of empirical knowledge to illustrate that. Right. And I mean, this, you know, again, in a basic way, I think they're quite um, successful at demonstrating certain things that, you know, that you can have, um, you know, seemingly, you know, small scale um, societies that practice agriculture over long periods and do not fall into any, you know, luxury trap or anything like that, right? That, that they seem to practice agriculture as one of various options for obtaining, you know, foodstuffs and, you know, may practice it alongside foraging and, and, um, and hunting without, without really, you know, there being this notion that, you know, once you've discovered agriculture, it's all over. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. And so, and the important thing is to show that this, this can actually, and, and has by the archeological record evidently gone on for a long time. And that also you have civilizations or societies that have practiced agriculture for a period, sometimes a long period, and then seemingly given it up. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. so there's, you know, both the idea that it, it's something that can be sort of picked up and, um, you know, it, it can be picked up and practiced as, as sort of part of your economy without it being, you know, that without it becoming the dominant mode of production to come back to that term. And also that it's that, that once you're in it, it's not some kind of, um, it's, it's not something that just sets you on this path towards increasing centralization. And, and sort of urbanization as, as is often believed. And then conversely, they, they show, um, that, you know, there's evidence of urban civilizations that seem to have been primarily, um, hunter, have primarily persisted as sort of hunter gatherers, right? That, that most of their foodstuffs appear to have come from, um, have, have come from foraging, right? And hunting. And that, you know, that, that again, you could have these urban civilizations that, that evolved and that also sustained themselves that way for significant periods of time. And so again, there's this attempt to kind of de-link, um, I mean, first of all, to, to, um, overcome this kind of either or framing and at the same time to kind of de-link these different, um, for, you know, aspects of a sort of, of social formation, right? And suggest mm-hmm. that, that they don't necessarily go together, right? That, that yeah, there, are, yeah. there are different ways of, of combining them that, that don't fit neatly within the kind of evolutionary models that are usually adduced here. Absolutely. And they're trying to carve out the greatest, widest possible scope for human freedom, right? That people actually can consciously choose how they want their societies to operate. And they're not trapped in this sort of cage that if we are subsisting off of this supposed mode of production, we will therefore like automatically enact this political form. And they, you know, they're trying to I think they refute, to give them credit, they refute these sort of Hobbesian and Rousseauian myths that there's some sort of flashpoint, right, where you where you change over from a primitive state to 
civilization, and there are all these inevitable consequences to that. Uh, it's also, I think, but it's interesting, I think this book is also very deeply anti-Marxist in a way that they're much more subtle about, you know, and just the, just the fact that they're taking issue with the very concept of mode of production, you know, there, I think that a lot of what this book is serving to do is sort of present a, uh, an ostensibly leftist radical, uh, narrative of human development that is not Marxist and is not uh, tied to to this Marxist framework. And, you know, if you're sensitive to it, you can see that's what they're doing, but they're much more uh, subtle about it. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, to me, it was interesting to see it's, I, I did not really see much in the way of criticism of this book from a sort of Marxist perspective, at least when I made an initial survey of what had been written about it, um, which I, which I did find surprising, um, because, I mean, for example, if you look at like, you know, the sort of Jacobin magazine and the podcasts associated with it, it was all pretty glowing coverage. Um, mm-hmm. and, but, but I think you're right that it is a, a, I mean, that, that it really tries to dismantle certain really basic assumptions you kind of need to have if you're, if you're a Marxist, <laughs> one of those would be mode of production. Like I don't, I don't really see how Marxism survives if you get rid of a notion of mode of production. <laughs> I mean, Marxist analysis of of power, as far as in my understanding, I am not as steeped in Marxism as some people are, but my understanding is that it's it is rooted in this idea of base and superstructure. That the the ultimate base of society is its economic production, its mode of material production and then politics are just sort of the window dressing uh put on on top of that you know i'm sure there are many marxists who would say that's oversimplifying but nonetheless that's my understanding and uh that's like exactly what they're dismantling in this book they're they're trying to say no you can put up whatever political structure you want based on whatever material base you've got Right. They they're totally uh, breaking that that relationship. And I think um, I haven't read, I, you know, I, I sort of sometimes I make a point of not reading reviews and comments on on a book that I'm reading. Uh, I did a little bit with this one, but uh, but I'm sure not. I didn't look around as much as you did. But to me, it seems to demonstrate that Marxism ain't what it used to be, you know, uh, post Cold War. There's no Soviet Union. There's no uh, superpower out there uh, that can kind of validate this sense that there's an ultimate truth to the Marxist description of history and that and that inevitably the history is going to unfold along those Marxist revolutionary lines. Like, I think it's just a lot harder to believe that today or for whatever social or political reason, people don't seem to really subscribe to that belief system anymore, even if they are ostensibly Marxist, right? So in in a way, I think maybe this book is kind of serving uh, a new market, right? A new opening for people who who want a different story or a story that is more, seems more politically liberating than the kind of more deterministic dialectical Marxist history. Yeah. And I mean, I think we'll get back to this later, but you know, yeah, this 
this notion of, I mean, it's, it seems to be animated by this kind of total volunteerism, right? That, that you can just kind of make and remake your society however you want. And I think, you know, I, I, I want to, um, I want to get into that in a critical way shortly, but the, I, so it, it's just worth noting, I think if, if you try to trace the origin of this project, it seems pretty clear to me that it's, um, it originates in, this basic question, which is posed particularly to anarchists like Graeber, right? Which is, well, and I mean, he, he makes this explicit really, you know, which is, well, you know, that sounds really nice to not have any kind of centralized authority and people telling you what to do, but, you know, and maybe that would work in a small group, but, um, you know, what about how, how do you scale it up to, um, to a large, uh, you know, complex sort of, um, highly differ economically differentiated society with, you know, division of labor and, you know, complex technologies and sciences that require specialization and coordination. So, you know, so this is basically the, the sort of aha question that's typically posed to anarchists. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, one way we could read this book is as kind of a, an attempt, you know, a very, very long winded answer to this kind of retort, right? And I think, yeah. you know, that it's interesting. I listened to an interview with Wengro, I think on, on one of the Jacobin podcasts, actually, in which he, um, you know, he sort of said, I mean, he, he, he responds to, or he explains how Graeber and he sort of initially responded to that question in the opposite way that, that you might think, which is to say, well, you know, well, people say, oh, well, anarchism works really well with small groups, but what about big ones? And, and he said, but of course, you know, as, as David and I knew, you know, if, if you actually hang around in small fringe radical groups, they don't really function very well at all. Right. And so, yeah. and, and in fact, all sorts of hierarchy and sort of domineering tendencies, uh, and, and highly divisive kind of, um, fragmentation occur within these all the time. Right. So in fact, <laughs> you know, which, which it's interesting to hear, um, so, you know, particularly Graeber, who was sort of this, you know, outspoken advocate of all these things that we associate with Occupy, like the sort of human microphone stuff and that that's all the sort of direct democracy organizational um, mm-hmm. strategies. So it's interesting to hear him say that. I mean, it's an obvious point to anybody who's actually uh, been been around any <laughs> yeah. of these groups. But, but you know, I, I think the other thing that's interesting about Graeber is that he's, you know, I mean, in terms of his background, he's also the opposite of a, you know, you have these sort of an, like anarcho-primitivists, right, for whom it really is about returning to this kind of idealized hunter-gatherer worlds that you might derive from a sort of um, shallow reading of, of Marshall Salins' essay that I mentioned before. I mean, you know, and these people are are a real and, and significant sort of fringe group around the world. And Graeber was sort of the opposite of that. I mean, he, you know, he has this essay I've, I've always loved and have taught quite a bit called um, On Flying Cars and the Declining Rate of Production, mm, yeah. which is, you know, very much about his continuing to be a sort of starry-eyed futurist who, you know, is still informed by the, the um, technological sort of fantasia of his youth, right, in the sort of latter period of, of the mid-century American moment where, you know, the belief that we'd have flying cars and and space colonies and all those kinds of things 
was still very real to him as a child. And that essay is kind of a reflection on what happened to those dreams and why the the visions of of high tech futurists seem so seem so much more limited today. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think one thing that's crucial for him is trying to figure out how you um, imagine a different kind of organization of society that is, um, you know, that that, again, preserves these freedoms. Right. While while still um, being committed to a kind of modernist vision of of technological improvement, right? That he that he he was always um, highly enthusiastic about, right? That he he's very much not a primitivist, and I think we can see how in this book, you know, he would see primitivism as a sort of as based on a misunderstanding, right? Um, and so the idea that you could have, for example, these advanced these sort of urban civilizations in the past, which were large and, and complex, but seemed to preserve a certain degree of of both social equality and, um, you know, freedom um, from sort of hierarchical control, you know, w- would be a way for him to think about, OK, well, can't we still have the things we like about modernity and and also have more of those things than we have now? Right. Have more of the genuine technologically enabled abundance that, you know, people dreamed about 50 to 70 years ago, but at the same time um, also achieve greater equality, right. Or, or greater, greater freedom, right. And, and greater, um, you know, uh, uh, again, I think the whole question of equality, as you brought up before is very complicated to make sense of in this book, but um, equality, not necessarily in the sense of material equality, but equality in the sense that, there are not people who are empowered to um, tell other people what to do and, you know, summon the power of the state to uh, to uh, punish those who disobey. Yeah, yeah, it's it's about it's more about personal freedom and not being subordinated to someone else. Um, yeah, it's it's about personal freedom, not being subordinated to a ruler or an elite and you know and as we can talk about maybe they they draw a lot on also on native americans you know particularly the the wendat or huron as sort of a model of a highly functioning society where everyone is is a free individual and yeah it does a lot of it adds up to this kind of argument that actually we can have our cake and eat it too and um i think you know i think that they they partly, they maybe part, they get part of the way <laughs> in proving that argument, but there are still, there are still hurdles and there's still the question of, well, are we really sure that that's what we want? Which I think they kind of take for granted that their readers are just going to sympathize with that, that vision that we want an abundant society, a sophisticated society where we also have maximum personal freedom and things are run by uh, consensual cooperation, et cetera. Uh, you know, is that attainable and is that really what we want? Right. And, you know, I think it is in, in a way his sort of, um, dismissal of the, the premises behind a sort of anarcho primitivist notion as well as his, um, you know, embrace, at least in his other writings of sort of high tech 
society, right? Mm-hmm. That, that he really, mm-hmm. um, he thinks that there was a sort of positive modernist dream of the future that, that was betrayed, right? And that he, mm-hmm. he has an interesting reading of neoliberalism and postmodernism as kind of both symptomatic of and also sort of ideologically partly responsible for this betrayal because what they do is say, um, you know, that, that, I mean, they, they shift the terrain of progress away from the sort of, um, the notions of a sort of, um, you know, widely distributed abundance that technology, technology could produce towards other, other ideas of what sort of growth and progress would be, right? And so anyway, I mean, that's, that's an interesting essay and he doesn't really revisit these ideas here, but, you know, I, I guess one thing that's kind of interesting is that unlike, I mean, I, I'm, I'm currently writing something about, um, Ivan Illich, right, who's often categorized as an anarchist and has this whole kind of interesting critique of scarcity, um, of, of sort of the notion of scarcity as a, a, an organizing concept of modern societies, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so, and it's, it's very concurrent in a way with that Salins article because, um, you know, Illich's argument is sort of that, you know, that, um, you know, the sort of ideologies of modernity, you know, begin by positing scarcity, right? As then something that has to be compensated for by, you know, um, the constant development of technology as well as the, um, developments of all of these sort of institutions and professions, right? That, that essentially, um, take autonomy away from, from individuals and families and communities, um, on the premise that this is what is going to, you know, bring progress and abundance to them, right? But, you know, so, so Illich's critique is that, you know, this, this whole notion that there even is such a thing as scarcity, right? Is this, this kind of dangerous, um, ideological assumption that, that sort of undergirds, you know, much of, uh, modernity, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting in a way to see Graeber, um, you know, not taking that critique insofar as I think he does basically embrace a notion that, you know, technologically generated abundance is a, is a desirable and positive project, right? And yeah, yeah. And personally, when I was reading the book, there were moments where I was kind of filling in the blanks, which I think is something a lot of readers surely do. I was, I was like, oh, well, they must be thinking of things like Mondragone, you know, which uh, Richard Wolff is always talking about, about these uh, industrial corporations that work as cooperatives and the workers make the decisions and hire and fire their bosses, etc. But um, but they don't they don't get into that in this book. They seem to sort of figure that. I mean, as best I can guess, they seem to sort of figure that the readers will be open to and favorable to that kind of uh, social arrangement that they're that we can you, again, you know, we can have our cake and eat it, too. And uh, but but they don't. They don't kind of close the deal by saying, here's how these social forms sometimes actually do work today in, in the 21st century, right? We, that's kind of the closest we get is like, well, you know, in Uruk, before the kings took over, uh, everything was run by the community board. And I'm like, 
okay, <laughs> like I believe you, but but clearly they 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 do not want. They're very clear that they they're not trying to turn the clock back, right? They believe that it is in our power to turn the clock forward, right? In that way, I think the the book is anti-Marxist, but it's also still revolutionary in its own way. We can we can remake the world as we wish, and uh, and not and not think that that means that we have to give up the the productivity the wealth the sophistication that we like right it's uh it's it is it is all within our power right and that's probably what's very appealing about the book to a lot of you know self-described radicals yeah and i mean this kind of makes me want to bring up uh one other one other sort of aspect of the project that I appreciated, and then maybe we can get into our criticisms more, but I, I really appreciated the argument, although as I'll get into, I think there's a way it, it goes off the rails, but I really appreciated the argument that, you know, people at all times have been self-conscious political actors, right? I think they take this argument in directions that I don't, um, that I don't really understand or fully um, endorse, but I think overall, right, this notion of, um, you know, social forms as as always being at least partly the, the result of people's ability to deliberate about and reflect on, you know, how society should be organized is, um, is, a, is a valuable kind of argument, right? And that, you know, there was, I mean, just the basic point that you know, at any point in the past, there were people as sort of intellectually astute and, you know, um, effective and and insightful about the, the shortcomings of their societies um, and and or, um, you know, what what kinds of improvements could be introduced, um, you know, that 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 this is not a sort of pure um, uh product of like the enlightenment and that, that everybody else in history was to some extent, you know, some sort of, uh, again, you know, deterministic automaton. Like, I mean, I think in some ways they overstate the way that other people like they, they have to assume that basically everybody before them just assumed that all these previous societies kind of lacked any critical sensibility. Um, so I think, you know, overall that's an interesting point, right? And it, it did, um, you know, and I was sort of prepared for it by my own awareness of like at least some of the anthropological and archaeological research I think they're, they're drawing upon, which, you know, for example, um, that, you know, you, you have in anthropological literature a strong sense that there are societies that are, are, um, that seem to be self-consciously egalitarian in that they, um, you know, anybody who accumulates too much wealth is immediately sort of forced to redistribute it. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, particularly in like the Amazon, for example, there, there are all these groups that have been repeatedly observed and studied over the years where there seems to be this kind of imperative that, um, you know, is, is, it could be understood as a sort of ideological one, right. In which, um, basically it is, it is wrong for any one person to accumulate 
too much power, right? Or, or too much power and too much um, wealth. And so there are these kind of mechanisms of redistribution that are built into how these societies function, right? And then, you know, the other thing I've sort of become aware of somewhat vaguely over the years is that, you know, there's also a sense that in the same regions of South America where you find this, you also in the past had these quite hierarchical um, sort of priestly urban societies, right? And so it's not unreasonable to imagine that these groups kind of formed these um, these social practices that are based on kind of redistribution and ensuring that nobody monopolizes too much power in part because their, you know, ancestors had experience of the opposite sort of society. Right. And therefore that mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. at some point and, and Graeber, you know, they, they go through um, a couple examples where this something like this seems to have happened, right. That there's a, a, an extremely, you know, centralized hierarchical, often priestly um, civilization, which, you know, falls into some kind of crisis. And what what sometimes seems to result is you have these groups that, you know, become so self-consciously egalitarian in a sense, right? That, that this, and this goes back to the sort of critique of determinism, right? That egalitarianism in these contexts is not a sort of natural expression of this primordial mode of production or of just, you know, the, it, it, or just a reflection of their, you know, ba- sort of mater- basic material circumstances. It's it's actually a sort of self-conscious ideological project that has to be kind of rigorously maintained through the generations and seems to oh, it's you know seems to res- have resulted from some sort of revolution in which you know this um, prior civilization collapsed and these groups that splintered off from it you know essentially decided that they did not want to, you know, fall into the same patterns that they're, um, you know, that, that they and later their ancestors um, had sort of uh, rejected. Right. And so I think yeah, this is, yeah. this is an interesting point and, and a useful one overall, I would say. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And I think that I actually saw a lecture that Graeber uh, that was posted on YouTube, of course, of Graeber, discussing the myth of the stupid savage uh which so i would already kind of been exposed to that line of reasoning that uh which basically is rooted in the the principle that there is there is no primitive society that 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 in itself is a misconception and and you can trace this really back to claude levy strauss who also is like kind of in the background, I think of this whole book and they mention him a few times, usually favorably, but you know, he wrote the savage mind and which basically is a way of debunking this notion that tribal people are incapable of intellectual reflection. They're, they're unselfconscious about their world. And I, you know, I think that it's, it's a good argument. I think that in the book, it's, nuanced maybe a bit more than it was in Graeber's earlier lecture, where in the book they put forward this theory of schismogenesis, the idea that distinct groups arise because for one reason or another, people sort of hive off and and define themselves in contradistinction, contradistinction to one another. So if you want to understand where a society comes from and why it works the way it does, you often have to say, well, who who are they splitting off from? 
and how and how do they then define themselves in contrast to the other and they go into this uh example which i thought was so interesting and really uh stimulating to think about this contrast between indigenous people in northern california as opposed to in the Pacific Northwest, like the Tlingit and the Kwakutl, and how they have such completely different value systems and in some ways seem almost like they're mirror images of one another, where the Pacific Northwest people are very hierarchical, they're very ceremonial, it's about showing off wealth, there are sort of strong men leaders, whereas in Northern California, in these groups, like I think the Kurik, if I remember right, was one, or I think it was either Kurik or Yurik, and they um they're they're sort of formally egalitarian. There's this ethic of modesty, not showing off, hard work, ac- accumulation rather than munificence, right? Ceremonial munificence, the potlatch is the the ideal in the Northwest. And I thought that was very interesting, and they attribute it to what they call schismogenesis. Um I thought, well, okay, maybe that's true. I'm not sure they really demonstrate it, that that's how it came about. Um, but that's how they account for it. And it seems like it's in that way, it's a little bit of a compromise, right? Where they're, they're not saying there was some moment in the past where they held a constitutional convention and wrote down what are our core values of this society, but that there was a kind of process maybe of reasoning over time where people gradually formed these values and principles knowing that they were they were defining themselves against something else that they didn't want to be yeah and i think here you know it might be worth getting into so i have sort of one critical point um regarding this which is you know, I, I think, um, as you said before, it, it's often as if, you know, like, I think, as I, as I was saying, this argument in favor of a kind of political agency being a sort of human universal is, is worthwhile, right? But mm-hmm. also the way that they conceive of that seems to me very limiting, because as you said earlier, it, it sounds as if they're sort of, imagining, you know, everything kind of functioning like the Occupy encampment or something like that, where like people are just kind of getting together and arriving at some consensus about what kind of social organization they want. And then that's, um, you know, and, and that, and that's how you explain the emergence of, of certain types of social forms. Now to me, the schismogenesis argument, I mean, so the schismogenesis argument is, is effective as a sort of um, counter, a piece of counter evidence against any kind of determinism, right? Because, you know, what they show with, as you said, the Pacific Northwest and Northern California is you have sort of similar ecosystems, similar types of um, resources available, and yet these two diametrically opposed societies evolving, right? And then that if you, they also look at their myths and sort of show that you know, there are sort of specific myths in these sort of more, um, these, uh, Northern Californian societies, which, which seem to define themselves against the Pacific Northwest societies in which you have things like slavery, right? Mm-hmm. And that there are these myths that seem to kind of explicitly, you know, condemn slavery, right? And see it as this kind of, 
um, predicament from which they themselves escaped at some point or, or from, you know, from which they, which they themselves left behind. Right. But yeah, I, I think the, the other thing that I, um, so, so the thing that I find sort of, and, and I mean, you brought up Levi Strauss, right. Um, there, the, it seems to me that there's a kind of flattening of this question of what it means to have political agency and to sort of self-consciously choose to adopt a certain social form because it's the the way, I mean, ironically, given that in some ways the book is a sort of critique of the enlightenment, it, it essentially assumes a kind of enlightenment value about, you know, what, what makes for the basis of, or what should make for the basis of sort of political, decisions and determinations right and so for example um it it excludes or or simply doesn't consider like aesthetics as one determinate as one point of determination right so in other words um it it assumes that like aesthetics would not be a value that would be or 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 if you claim i mean from there the way they frame the argument i would say if if you claim as i as i think i am that um you know if if you want to think about how people organize their societies you have to think about their aesthetic values and not just their sort of rational deliberations then Absolutely. they then they they kind of put us in the position where i guess i would be accused now of being of being a primitivist or or of or of of being a primitivist if I value that positively or of being a kind of orientalist or something like that if i mm-hmm. if i'm implying that you know, these pre-modern civilizations are, um, you know, deriving their judgments about what kind of society we should have based on aesthetic criteria. So to me, it seems clear that that is true, right? (laughs) That that aesthetic criteria are important. And I think that is also true in modern society, right? But Mm -hmm. the idea that that would be regarded negatively um, is itself, which, which they seem to you know, only be able to imagine this as a kind of negative evaluation, right? Um, that, mm. that if you, if you claim that aesthetics or let's say, you know, religious ideas, which I think is a whole other aspect of this, um, that, that we need to get into. If you say that those are clearly elements that inform how people engage in these kind of deliberations about what kind of society they want, then it seems to me they, Graeber and Wengrove kind of backed themselves into this corner where they would have to accuse me of being, of, of, of kind of either reiterating a noble savage myth where, you know, they're just these simple people who think in images or something like that, or of, or of, um, you know, being some kind of, uh, you know, again, of being a kind of orientalist, right? Who's incapable of imagining them having rationality. Well, and I think uh, an enemy of human freedom, right, is probably how they would cast that, right? And they're they're really like mixing uh, pot and alcohol here in the sense that they're making these big descriptive claims saying human beings are capable of reflecting consciously and rationally on how they want society to work and coming to their own determinations. And then laced all through it is, are these value claims, these, these normative claims that this is good. This is part of our essence as human beings and that we should be doing this all the time. And there's something wrong with us. You know, we're, they keep saying we're stuck. Things have gone wrong because we're not engaging in sort of imaginative play about how society ideally ought to work. 
And this was the biggest, most frustrating aspect of the book to me was I was like, hold on here. Like, first of all, on the descriptive level, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. People are capable of conscious reflection and debate about how society should work, but they don't do it very much. They're often not good at it and they usually don't like it. They don't, they don't want their myths to be questioned. People don't want their view of the world to be upset unless they're already really aggravated and they see something is going really wrong. And even then, when they're sort of become these ideal anarchist revolutionary subjects and they're ready to tear down the system, they tend to just recreate some myth that they already know, right? They, it's like you ask people, what's a utopian society? They'll generally tell you it's a society like the one they already live in that's just perfected, right? That just realizes those same values in a more perfect and frictionless way, right? And, and I was like, okay, uh, you've got, you've got all this emphasis on myth and the way that it can blind you and rule out certain possibilities, right? We can't, we're unable to reimagine our world because we believe in the myth of the noble savage, etc. But they don't acknowledge how myth also guides what we want and what we imagine and what we aspire to, right? And that's how societies, I think, recreate themselves. I think this is something, I mean, I don't know, but this seems like something Claude Levi-Strauss would agree with, is like you ask people, hey, recreate whatever society you want, they're going to draw on the myths and the worldview that they're already familiar with and try to realize that in some more perfect way. And I don't think that they acknowledge the power of myth in that sense. And they don't seem to consider that if we got together a bunch of uh, modern Western people and said, wipe the slate clean, do whatever you want, I mean, isn't this what John Rawls was talking about? John Rawls was saying, let's imagine people who, you know, have, are totally unencumbered, can recreate, reimagine society however they want. And what do they create? They basically create a uh, social democracy, right? They, re- they create something that a Harvard professor from Baltimore would want to create, right? <laughs> uh, so in that sense, I think they're, they're, they're not really grappling with the power of myth and how much people love myth and people want continuity. They want familiarity. Uh, they want the world that they know. They're not, everybody is not just a natural anarchist, right? Right. Yeah. It's, and I, I think this, yeah. So, so to me, the, again, I, th- I think what's weird here is that they, um, they take, you know, on one hand, they sort of, um, they try to, I mean, I, we should get into this whole, um, their, their whole account of the European Enlightenment, which I think is kind of a disaster. Um, it's, it's probably, I mean, it's, it's the part of the book that most infuriated me. Um, but, you know, what I think is kind of interesting is that they themselves, as, as I think you were just saying, are very much the inheritors of these kinds of, um, you know, enlightenment prejudices, I would say, where of, of of the worst sort, right? Where they um they essentially downgrade certain elements of uh you know that that are essential and fundamental to all human societies. And but but what they do instead of saying, you know, myth is dumb and if you believe in it you're dumb is to say, 
if you assert that these previous societies were, you know, as well as, I mean, I would say contemporary society is deeply animated by myth, as you were just arguing. But but if you say that about, you know, ancient societies or, you know, North American tribal societies, they they will say, right, they, they will say, oh, well, I guess you're just reasserting this kind of racist um historical model um but you know i mean to me the other thing that's kind of interesting here is that they i mean i'm i'm very um i'm, I'm influenced by um bruno latour in this right that you know the, his argument is basically that you know what what distinguishes modernity is that it creates this sort of um set of divisions between different you know so for example it takes something like myth and says that that occupies a different sphere from something like politics, right? And that they shouldn't be mixed, mm. right? But, but Latour's argument is that they are always being mixed anyway. So, you know, when modernity does this, it, it's, it's a kind of productive um, illusion because it enables certain kinds of things to happen, certain kinds of um, social um, phenomena to be sort of mobilized, um, you know, particularly things like science, but mm-hmm. it, it, but for Latour, the point is that, you know, we're now having to come to grips with the fact that these these divisions were always illusory, right? That that myth never stopped, you know, just as myth was always animating all these earlier periods, it is also animating us today, right? And that it's not, mm-hmm. you know, simply cordoning that off from something like politics or something like science is is a, a ultimately you know, a perpetuation of this, this kind of foundational illusion. So what's odd to me about Graeber and, and Wengro in these terms is that they sort of seem to accept this constitutive division, right? Whereby, you know, politics is something fundamentally distinct from myth. And what they, instead what they want to do is sort of universalize politics and argue that, mm. you know, deliberative politics, deliver, deliberative sort of rational political thought has been a property of all societies. And if you, if you pay attention to other things that might have motivated or informed those societies, then you're somehow degrading them, right? Degrading them, and this, right. Yeah. And, th- and this seems, you know, this, this seems like a disastrous move to me <laughs> because it forces them to, it, for, it forces them to accept the, the sort of degrading understanding of something like myth, um, something like you know, what we would categorize as under the heading of religion. I mean, it, it, it forces us to accept all of those kind of demotions, right. That, that are performed by the enlightenment, right. Mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. which they're allegedly critiquing the sort of legacy of, but which in fact, I think they're, they're sort of reinforcing some of the more sort of pernicious and, and ultimately damaging uh, assumptions there. Yeah, I think, and I think that they're, I mean, haven't we heard this song before? Like, doesn't this go back to, to Hegel and Hegel's critique of previous philosoph- philosophers that, uh, you know, Graeber and Wengro seem to be imagining that, like, the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787 was, like, the basic model for how societies should operate it should always be these kind of rational actors coming in in an abstract way laying down the the right laws that we want to follow 
And, um, of course they would attack those, those individuals as being, uh, you know, locked into their racist and sexist assumptions and encumbered by their own myths and prejudices. But they don't, they don't consider, well, maybe that's how like all societies work, you know, like maybe this is maybe myth and, and, you know, deeply held assumptions that order the world are always being expressed in politics and in the exercise of power and that, uh, and that power flows from myth. And, um, they discuss the origins of kingship a bit, which I think they, they do in not a too bad way. I think they have some interesting good ideas there that it relates to death and the transition from life to the afterlife. Um, but it seems as if they sort of assume, well, done. We've deconstructed kingship. We've shown how it's all phony and they don't stop and think like, okay, well, there are many societies in the world today that are perfectly capable of grasping how monarchy is all about pageantry and it's all, and it's purely ceremonial and they like it and they want more of it. (laughs) Like people, they're, you know, a, a healthy, strong society is a society that has rituals and symbols and stories that people embrace. Like this is, this is what Hegel was saying is like Athens is doing really well when everybody is taking part in the procession to make offerings to Athena. Uh, and, and people generally buy into it and are, and are happy with it. And it's, and the problem is when that confidence breaks down and people are alienated from the central myths and rituals of their society. Now, you don't necessarily have to agree with Hegel. Like, I'm just saying this is a totally uh, opposing viewpoint on power and myth that they don't seem to, to consider at all. Like, they, 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 it, they do not address it in the least. They don't seem as if they've even really thought about it. And I thought, how do they get away with that? And I think a lot of it is that, you know, this book is sort of aimed at an audience that just doesn't know about these already existing debates that have been going on for hundreds of years. They don't know what Hegel said about Athens, which is fine. Everyone doesn't have to know about that. But I would say they're taking advantage of that. They're taking advantage of the fact that there is now a massive college-educated audience that knows nothing, that knows nothing about philosophy, knows nothing about history, and are they're just like working on this raw material. Yeah. And I, I mean, let's, let's get into the enlightenment thing, which I think is, uh, is related to that. But I, I did want to say one other thing, which is, you know, you brought up before that they, they constantly bring up this notion of play, right? But, you know, what strikes me here is that, I mean, I was also interested in, you know, do they have any notion of human nature? Like that was something I was trying to tease out of this book. And I think, I think generally they would probably have to say no. Um, you know, and we could think about this in terms of like the Thomas Sowell, you know, constrained versus unconstrained vision. This is clearly the kind of a more extreme version of the unconstrained vision in some sense, right? But what's interesting there is that if it's about play, you know, as anybody who plays any game knows, uh, you know, without some sort of quite strict constraints, a game simply doesn't work, mm. right? And so, and this, I think it relates to the schismogenesis. It relates to their remarks about seasonality, right? That basically you have these, 
um, societies, for example, in the Arctic that, you know, will alternate between more hierarchical and more kind of flat social organizations seasonally, right? So depending on, you know, summer or winter, you know, whether they're fishing and hunting or, you know, sort of consuming what they stored up, they will, they will alternate between these different forms, right? So apparently, you know, again, and for them, what this shows is that, you know, there's no sense in these societies that they are stuck with some kind of hierarchical organization, right? That they're perfectly capable of scrapping that every year and replacing it with this, um, this seemingly flat organization where certain things that would be taboo or, or not permitted um, at certain times of year become okay, right? And of course, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the more famous version of this would be something like Carnival, where you have a kind of ritualized inversion of, of the social order as something that's, you know, instituted and, and accepted as, as sort of part of the functioning of that order, right? So there's this, this playful overturning. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, what they're missing here, and this also goes for schismogenesis is, you know, they, they seem to present it as if, what this shows is just that everybody is always kind of envisioning this wide range of possibilities and they're just kind of, you know, again, voluntarily choosing to embrace one rather than the other. And to me, this just doesn't seem like a convincing analysis of what's happening. I mean, I'm not an expert on any of these kinds of things, but um, I mean, I've read quite a bit about Carnival, but it doesn't seem like a convincing even description of what's happening there because it's clear that if you're alternating between these fixed forms which contrast with each other, just as if you're evolving a kind of social structure that strongly contrasts with that of a neighboring group, you know, and these are both well-observed phenomena, that that does not imply it. I mean, to me, that implies the presence of constraint rather than the lack of it, right? I mean, it, it's, and, it, and in some ways, I would argue it's sort of, again, you know, you could only have a good game if the game has quite strict constraints about what you can do within it, Right. And so what I would argue is that it seems to me what's going on here, you know, just as, you know, the, the societies in which you had carnival were, you know, generally highly constrained and hierarchical ones. Um, what's going on here is that, that what these exhibit is not the absence of constraint, but the presence of a, a very strong set of constraints, right? That, that is actually what enables the, the sort of playfulness, if you want to call it that, to, to function. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and on both of those points, I had I had similar thoughts. I mean, you you do have to wonder, okay, what is their what is their anthropology in the old fashioned sense of what how do they describe humankind? And they're very careful not to say there's a fixed human nature, right? Because that's an, another kind of determinism. But they do have they kind of. Uh, they sneak it in, I think, on, so I noted on page 86, they're discussing, um, their idea that human beings are conscious and reflective, and they paraphrase this other, uh, this other scholar named, uh, Christopher Boom, or Boom, and, and they say, quote, this, he concludes, is the essence of politics the ability to reflect consciously on different directions one society could take and to make explicit arguments why it should take one path rather than another. In this sense, one could say Aristotle's right, which I don't think this is what Aristotle was saying, uh, 
But it, but one could say Aristotle was right when he described human beings as political animals, since this is precisely what other primates never do, at least not to our knowledge. And then they go on to say, they, they push it further and they say, if, if the very essence of our humanity consists of the fact that we are self-conscious political actors and therefore capable of embracing a wide range of social arrangements, would that not mean human beings should actually have explored a wide range of social arrangements? So they're kind of slipping it in like by sleight of hand here that the essence of humanity is being political actors and being, you could say, political debaters, right? And and I was like, no, no, like, hold on, record scratch. Like, sure, this is something humans do that other animals don't. But there are all kinds of things that humans do that other animals don't. You know, other animals don't write music or write books, right? But that doesn't mean it's like the essence of our humanity and we must be doing it all the time, right? And I think they they kind of, in this uh, slippery way, they kind of make that leap to say, this is what makes us essentially human. And so we must be doing it constantly, both descriptively and normatively. And then, and then with the seasonality, again, I was like alarm bells, alarm bells, like all societies, like, sorry to generalize, but all societies have ritual actions that they repeat over the course of the year and that they use to demarcate between different states of being associated with the, the seasons. And they tend to explain these things as reflections of nature, reflections of the just inherent nature of the earth and the cosmos. And it's very interesting and thought provoking how there are these societies. They describe the Amazon and then the Inuit uh, and, and how they go. They, they have different political forms and different forms of authority at different times of year. But does that mean that they're they're going through this kind of conscious debate and that they're aware that there's an infinite play of variety of different ways they could organize their society? I doubt it. I think that they're doing the same sort of thing people do all the time, which is they form practices and customs and they explain them as expressions and reflections of the fundamental nature of things. Right. We must do this because there is one God that rules in the summer and another God that rules in the winter. There is there is a sun God and there is an underworld God. You know, take your pick. And and if you ask these people, why do you do this? I highly doubt that many of them are going to say, well, it's because we had a debate and we hashed out all the different ways that we could organize society. And we picked this one for this part of the year and this one for this part of the year. I mean, it just doesn't seem realistic. And when it comes to carnival, that was where I was like, um, you know, when they're discussing, say, the Inuit, I don't I don't know anything about the Inuit beyond certainly not as much as they do. And I was like, like, all right, uh, sure, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But then they get to Carnival, which is, you know, medieval and early modern Europe. And I was like, and they claim, well, uh, Carnival was significant because all these peasant rebellions in Europe began from Carnival. It started off from the sort of pageantry of the world turned upside down. And then... Uh, and then it exploded and they refused to go back. And I was like, I don't think that happened. I don't think that's true. I don't think peasant rebellions had anything to do with carnival. And I looked it up. I started searching. There's no example of that. That did not happen. People rebelled 
when a tax collector showed up in their town and started demanding money or a, or a conscription, you know, a military authority came to their town and started conscripting the young men and a scuffle broke out and then it became a riot and then it exploded into rebellion. It was about material, tangible material things. It was not this conceptual play, right? And and that is one of the examples I noticed where I was like, guys, this is kind of my field. I know a little bit about this. And this is just not true. This is not what happened. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's probably worth getting into the Enlightenment stuff in relation to this. Um, mm -hmm. But just one other point, you know, that I thought was interesting is, you know, their basically their claim is that um, you know, the origin of a lot of ideas of freedom is these sort of pre-conquest, particularly North American societies, right? Which they, mm -hmm. they present as places where, you know, basically there was no one, there might be a chief, but you could, you know, if he told you something, what to do, you could tell him to go get stuffed and there was no consequence for that. Um, where you could just kind of pick up and leave at will, supposedly, you could just kind of, wander off mm -hmm. and, you know, join a different group and no big deal. And so, you know, it, it, if there is a part of the book that's, you know, <laughs> offering its own sort of noble savage stuff, even though the whole mm -hmm. thing is a, allegedly a critique of that, you know, that's, that's kind of it. Right. And we'll get into how that informs their, their very odd uh, version of the enlightenment. But th <laughs> then there are also these odd parts though, where they're discussing um, how, you know, basically you had a certain degree of, of a kind of, um, unified cosmovision, I guess, different, uh, groups in, in North America who didn't necessarily even speak, uh, mutually understandable languages, but, you know, had similar kind of totemic systems, right? In terms of how they classified animals, but also how they classified different groups within the society, right? And these totemic, systems had significant practical implications, right? So on one hand, it meant that there were certain obligations towards you. If you were a member of some totemic clan, basically you could go to a different group and you, they would be, the members of that clan there would be obligated to put you up. Um, at the same time, there would be restrictions about who you could and couldn't marry. And also be, be your membership in a totemic clan would restrict what you could and couldn't hunt, Right. So they, they bring all of this up, right? And, and so what they're describing there is a set of both pro, positive obligations and negative prohibitions, right? That restrict what you can and can't do and also obligate you to act in certain ways at certain times. So this goes along with their description of this being a society where basically anybody could disobey authority and it would be fine and there would be no consequence, right? Where this kind of, personal and collective freedom was was could be expressed to the maximal degree. So what seems really weird is that um the I mean how do they account for these obligations and prohibitions? I mean, I agree that it's okay, so here's here's what I would say about this. Um it part of what it shows is how impoverish their notion of power seems to be because they seem to think if you don't have a specific dude who can tell you what to do, 
then you must be free, right? Right, But but in fact, what these kinds of totemic systems of obligations and prohibitions show is that there are all sorts, and this goes back to the point about constraint, right? There are all sorts of constraints on behavior, both in these societies and in the present, that do not take the form of, you know, a cop telling you you can't do something and arresting you if you do, right? Which is basically their, seemingly their model of how power operates. And so their model of freedom is, you know, um, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. But, but then, okay, so could you say, fuck you, I don't, I won't do what you tell me and then hunt the, the animal that was prohibited to you by virtue of your totemic affiliation? Well, apparently not, according to them, right? So then what is it that's enforcing that? Well, I guess my, you know, I mean, it goes back to points that you've made already, but, you know, my sense is one way to think about this would be there is, uh, there is something like the transcendent that is operative in this and all other societies, which, you know, sometimes will coincide with, um, with what, you know, people explicitly tell you you can or can't do, but can simply be something that operates without any direct enforcement from an authority figure because it's simply, I mean, kind of going back to points you've made, part of the kind of structure through which you apprehend reality. And so, you know, there are ways that may gradually shift, but the point is that there are all sorts of constraints that they themselves admit are present in these societies, and yet they're claiming that they are somehow completely unconstrained, right? That the people living within them are, are again, um, able to fully express their human freedom. But, and, and maybe that's so, but if, if so, your model of freedom would have to take account of these other types of constraints that don't take the form of, you know, the chief uh, telling you what you can and can't do, right? But instead take the form of some kind of transcendental set of values, which entail prohibitions and obligations, which which impute some kind of necessity to certain behaviors, right? Absolutely, and so that's, yeah. and that's like the thing that I find, you know, maybe most frustrating about this book that it, I mean, which again is, I think related to this ultimately kind of, it, I mean, it's an impoverished version of how power operates. I mean, and again, maybe I'm, maybe this is also a kind of Marxist critique, um, although I wouldn't generally take that approach because it's like, well, where's something like ideology? Apparently mm-hmm. nowhere. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess it's only present in this idea that people today are stuck. And therefore they can't imagine their society being in any other way. But, you know, it's, um, you know, this idea that, that, you know, power and constraint can function in other ways than just some specific dude telling you what you can and can't do. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's remarkable, you know, the, so this discussion of indigenous America, and particularly, they focus in on this figure of Kandiyaronk, who was a, a Wendat statesman and orator. That is mostly in the first chapter, right? And they use it really as like a framing device for explaining what they're doing in the book. And it's, I mean, it's on the one hand, it's wonderful to see them excavate this person and see what he had to say and what was convincing about it, right? Uh, but... At the same time, it's an amazingly naive and superficial interpretation of who Kandirank was and how that society worked. And they take completely at face value 
Condiranc's assertions that we have no subordination, everyone is free. It's, you know, it, he paints this utopian picture of the society that he's speaking for. And they it, they treat it completely uncritically, right? Graeber and Wengro treat it completely uncritically, and they don't stop and ask these questions of, well, then how were how was compliance obtained? How how did this society uh, perpetuate itself, and how did it obtain uh, certain behaviors that followed the accepted norms and practices of that society? And on the one hand, you can say, oh well, there. There's discourse, there's mythology, you know, you could look at it from a Foucault point of view, a Marxian point of view. But I was also just thinking, what if someone commits a murder? Like, there's some, con- there has to be some consequence there. How does that work? And if you read through the chapter, there's like this tiny, tiny little aside where they say, oh, and of course, if someone broke the law, because there were laws, if someone broke the law, the whole clan to which they belonged was held was held responsible, not just the individual. And I said, oh, okay, there's your enforcement mechanism. You impose penalties upon the clan, and then it's the duty of the clan to ensure compliance and conformity upon the individuals. It's not at the imperial level, right? It's not some emperor on a throne issuing punishments. It's down at the smaller level, which, you know, Graeber and Wengro could argue that that's better. They could argue that that's a better way of of ensuring compliance and conformity in a society at a smaller, more local level. But they don't do that. They just sort of brush over it and take for granted this whole notion that, oh, everyone was just free. And meanwhile, Kandiaronk is an adult male orator. Uh, we don't hear nothing from the women, right? The men are hunting, having a great time. The women have the duty of of material survival in the form of agriculture, right? There was a very strict division of labor between men and women in these Iroquoian societies. And to the point that it was like extremely shameful for a man to even like pick up an agricultural implement because that's women's work, right? We never hear nothing from the women here. We never hear nothing from the captives. And and there's this little aside. They There's this little passing aside where they say, oh, by the way, the Wendat had slaves. <laughs> and they gloss over and say, and it's in quotation marks. It's in scare quotes. And I'm like, wait, you, wait, you just yada, yada, yada slavery. You just yada, yada, yada slavery. I thought that's what we were not supposed to do. So they, the precisely the sort of uh glossing over and idealization that people have traditionally done with regard to colonial society this book does like the exact same thing to this Iroquoian society. And it's a, it, it, and it's just, it's very superficial. Yeah. And I mean, so it, David Bell, um, had a sort of, uh, review that was, you know, targeted at exactly this point. Um, you know, David Bell, a historian of the French Enlightenment. Um, so, mm. you know, he really, I'm, I'll, I'll link that, um, in the show notes, but it's, you know, it, it, it has a number of like really remarkable claims. Um, and, you know, this has been kind of poured over by other people, so we don't necessarily need mm-hmm. to get that mm-hmm. far into it, but, you know, basically their entire argument relies on this bizarre notion that this one book 
um, by Baron Laurentin, um, who was a, a French intellectual who made a visit to, you know, French Canada and, you know, had dialogue. I mean, and, and so there were these sort of, um, native leaders and orators who would have kind of back and forths with the French colonial authorities, right? And this, this is an actual known thing and it's, it did happen. Um, and so this Kandariank was a real person. And, you know, it's, it's plausible to imagine that, you know, that at least some of this was taken from things that he said, right? But mm -hmm. uh, that, that these dialogues that, you know, he's, he's, um, the, the character is given the name Adario, right? But, um, basically it's, it's plausible to imagine that at least, you know, these, um, I mean, just as, uh, you know, and, and this isn't an unfamiliar phenomenon, right? If you read Montaigne's On Cannibals, you know, there's sort of a dialogue with these visiting natives, um, from Brazil that he quotes from, and then this gets filtered into the Tempest, right? That there's sort of this, um, mm -hmm. these sections of On Cannibals that then get, you know, translated into English. And then, you know, if you read parts of the Tempest, they're basically kind of cribbed from this. So, so this idea that there are sort of natives who have some kind of dialogue with the European, um, those words are then, of course, translated and interpreted and then relayed by European authors and then kind of circulated and become influential in various ways. Now, this is obviously um, it's obviously a thing that happened. Right. And it's and it's, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so on that level, fine. Right. Like, I think it is true that um, some of these native peoples who engaged in dialogue with Europeans had a sort of influence on European intellectual history. Like, I think that's, I'll, I'll take that yeah. point. Um, but they go far, far further than that, right? Mm -hmm, so yeah. essentially they argue that, you know, uh, 18th century France was sort of this, um, you know, it was like the most hierarchical society imaginable in human history. And that basically prior to being exposed to this, um, these kind of harangues by, this um this native orator Kandaryank you know it was essentially inconceivable for the french or other europeans to question these um hierarchical social structures right mm -hmm. and so essentially the argument is that you know this entire strain of enlightenment thinking comes not not just generally out of kind of being exposed to um the other ways of living that they saw on display in these native societies they encountered in the americas but, you know, which, again, I think I, I would accept the point that, um, you know, Europeans encounter with other kinds of societies in the Americas did have a, an influence on political thought. Like, fine. But their argument is much more narrow and kind of bizarre. Right. It's that this particular native orator who, as you said, you know, is it's not only treated as if Laontan's transcript, supposed transcription of him is this kind of, you know, completely accurate and pellucid representation of his thought but also that his own account of his own society is is left completely unquestioned right he's taken to be just mm -hmm, kind of offering mm -hmm. a sort of neutral objective description of his um of his own society and and so you know <laughs> basically th their whole argument ends up and i mean the thing i find strange about this is that you know it makes their whole argument rely on a much more specific and um, tenuous set of claims than it would have to rely on, right? Because they have to yeah. claim that this one guy 
you know, who's, but who's also, you know, and again, it's kind of interesting that, you know, they put the reader in the position of, well, if, if you question this, then you're somehow questioning the sort of cognitive sophistication of, of Native Americans and therefore you're racist. But, you know, they themselves make this one guy a sort of stand in for the entire Weltanschauung of sort of North American societies, which, you know, is an interestingly kind of Orientalist um, approach. But it, it, it's, it's a very odd aspect of this book that it, it makes the argument kind of stand and fall on this extremely weak and tenuous attribution, right? Of all of these ideas to this one person who is taken to be, um, you know, wh- whose ideas are taken to be both, you know, a fully act based on a fully accurate and, and sort of, um, and, and objective description of the society he comes from and are taken to be, and that his ideas are taken to be, you know, represented in a, in a completely transparent way by this French author who transcribes them. So it's, a, it's just a very odd argument. It's, it's very weird. And there were, there absolutely were several points where I kept asking myself, why do you feel the need to do this? Like they, they build up, to be totally fair, they build up this idea of the indigenous critique, that there were sort of various indigenous intellectuals who all made a sort of similar consistent criticism of Western society or European, European society, I think is how they phrase it in the book. And that this, they say at one point, this was a shock to the system. This was like such a dramatic challenge to the thoughts and assumptions of these Europeans who were completely steeped in hierarchy and, and deference and that they, and that this was, this, this created the enlightenment. I mean, they basically say the enlightenment is the result of this indigenous critique, sort of shocking Europeans. And, and as part of this, they make these subsidiary arguments that, uh, that when we see indigenous characters speaking in European texts, that this is real accurate representation of their ideas and arguments and that they are not merely sock puppets, right? This is not merely a case of Europeans projecting their own thoughts onto indigenous people. It's authentic, right? And I was like, why, why do you need to argue that? Like, why is that so important? And for one thing, they cite this book, uh, I think it's like Let- Letters from an Incan Princess. They cite this book by Françoise de Graffigny, where she actually literally invents a fictitious Incan princess and then has her write letters commenting on European society. And I'm like, uh, I think you have a problem here. You're citing as an example, a, a counterexample where, where this is, this is truly a European author making up uh, 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 an indigenous character to speak to a European audience and, and voice these critiques. And maybe, maybe you could say that Graffigny was getting some of those ideas from Garcilaso de la Vega and these other books that, you know, describing indigenous America, but they don't, they don't make that argument. They don't demonstrate that. They seem, they, again, it's this sort of sleight of hand. Like if you question, uh, the authenticity of this indigenous critique, you must be a racist who thinks that indigenous people are stupid. Uh, and then further, the other corollary of it is that they have to argue that these ideas of democracy and equality have no background in Europe, right? And that, and that it was inconceivable 
that Europeans could think about democracy or equality before this indigenous critique kind of hit them in the face. And they and they make this assertion about Rousseau that he was getting this idea completely from his response to, uh, you know, the Jesuit relations and these stories about indigenous people. And he was just completely steeped in this totally, you know, courtier hierarchical world. And of course, they don't mention he was born and raised in Geneva in a republic, right? A republic that was governed by debate among citizens. Like if you want a model of what they're imagining as a good society, there were ancient republics in Europe, in 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 the, the in the ancient classical world, in the medieval Italian cities, in Switzerland, in the Swiss cantons, and that was fully part of the debate too. And you say, oh, no one was thinking about democracy, no one approved of democracy. What happened to Machiavelli? You know, uh, and the discourses on Livy and and this whole elaborate theoretical effort to to uh, describe how a democratic republic could function and last through time like this. All of that is totally thrown in the the trash can, um, which is fine if they disagree with it. They can argue against it and 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 tell us to forget about it. But they just assume that their readers have never heard of this. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, another right. Another passage I so they quote a, a passage from um, the, you know, the dialogues. Um, one of these passages they attribute to Kandariank, um that's about money. Right. And to imagine one can live in a country of money and preserve one's soul is like imagining one could preserve one's life at the bottom of a lake. Money is the father of luxury, lasciviousness, intrigues, trickery, lies, betrayal, insincerity, all of the world's worst behaviors. Fathers sell their children's husbands, their wives, wives betray their husbands, brothers kill each other, friends are false and all because of money. In the light of all this, tell me what we Wenda, tell me that when we Wenda are not right in refusing to touch or so much look at silver. And then they follow up by saying, for Europeans in 1703, this was heady stuff. I mean, this is, (laughs) this sounds completely nuts. I mean, this, this text could have been written by all sorts of like Renaissance satirists. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost like a tissue of, of sort of cliches by this time. And then the other thing that I find weird that they would claim that is that, you know, Graeber, if you go back to debt, you know, he's influenced by someone like uh, Karl Polanyi, right, with the Great Transformation, where, you know, th- these kind of economic histories that show that, that the rise of the money economy kind of in this period and its its sort of um, institutionalization and, and the, the, the sort of the way that it allowed for the rerouting of all of these kinds of productive activities through the state and allowed for taxation and um, for, you know, debts to be enforced and things like that. Like at the period when this was written, you know, according to people like historians like Polanyi, who Graeber is heavily reliant on in his previous book, I mean, the, the money was still a relatively sort of new thing in many parts of Europe itself, right? Like you had basically, um, you know, particularly in sort of rural peasant societies, um, you know, this was not, this was not a period in which money was simply this kind of unquestioned basis of all economic activity, right? That there, there were plenty of internal criticisms of money that, preceded this by hundreds of years and that's partly because 
the sort of money economy was was just evolving as a thing at this time. Yeah, and uh, the the love of money is the root of all evil. I mean, that's in the New Testament. Right, exactly. Yeah, and it, right. It has all of these <laughs> these Christian. Um, I mean, again, that that whole passage you could imagine as a kind of Renaissance Christian satirist. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's which is not to, it's not to say that Kandiaronk necessarily didn't say that. I mean, maybe he did. We just can't know for certain. And and it's bizarre that they're staking. They 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 speak as if they're staking their whole argument on this claim that this was authentically what Kandiaronk really said, and that Europeans would never have thought of this otherwise. That this was completely new to them. Uh, and like why and to me it almost seems like it's this rhetorical strategy to to build up this sense that their argument is the argument of the indigenous people and and anyone who rejects their argument is on the side of the evil european imperialists right right exactly and that you know and that that's i just think a really um I don't know. It, it, it just strikes me. I mean, they, you know, and they, so they make a big deal about their citation of indigenous scholars, right? Who have, who have made these claims previously. And, you know, it, it, it strikes me as a kind of, you know, you know, a couple of white, white male academics <laughs> sort of trying to, um, you know, trying to play this game of, of sort of, you know, um, legitimating their authoritativeness on, on the basis of these citations, right? That, oh, well, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're here just deferring to like indigenous women scholars. And so, you know, yeah. some, it's, it's, it's just this very odd game where, you, you know, they're, they're, they're attempting to, you know, in a sense, gain a kind of intersectional currency for their, <laughs> for their argument by, um, by kind of, buying these pretty questionable interpretations hook line and sinker yeah yeah and and you know i haven't read those works that they cite and maybe they're persuasive maybe they're not but it seems it's so it's so uh strange how they they weave that into their argument and yeah it seems to be playing this kind of rhetorical role of setting up a binary and saying we're the good guys and on the other side of the ledger they talk about Rousseau, and as I said, they don't, I mean, I guess this page has kind of become infamous because it's so glaring where they, they completely ignore that he was from Geneva and that there was this history of contention, uh, in Geneva between elites and the populace and, and around the, the idea of, of democracy and a republic. And, and then, and, and they, they smear him. They say that he was, he was engaged in a project of sleeping his way to the top of the court. I was like, excuse me, Rousseau was a weird, shy, awkward guy who completely flunked. He was a disaster at court. He couldn't network worth anything. He was, he was private, awkward. He ran away from court and he married a laundry maid. He married a laundry maid. Like he is more or less the opposite of this caricature that they present that he was this decadent aristocrat. And I think that it's, um, or a decadent courtier, right? Trying to sleep his way to the top of court. And I was like, this is not history. This is an American's, uh, mythic 
caricature of Ancien Régime France, right? That they were all these decadent aristocrats who were all, you know, kissing the king's butt and it was all, and they were, and they were eating, you know, cake and pastry all day and, and they were just luxuriating in their own, uh, decadence when that, you know, I wouldn't want to live in pre-revolutionary France and I don't approve of it, but there were intense debates in pre-revolutionary France around civic republicanism, right? And the idea of civic virtue and self-sacrifice and patriotism, it was totally enmeshed in that world, in that language. And Rousseau had a certain degree of success, not because he was sleeping his way to the top, but because he presented arguments that appealed to that kind of audience. Right. And I think, you know, this kind of gets to a larger point, which is that, I mean, I think this is related to what's sometimes thought of as like Occidentalism, where basically what they do is they enact mm, this kind of critique mm. of, I mean, it's not exactly Orientalism, but of, of the, the way that the West has construed other societies, right? As sort of rigid and inflexible and incapable of critical reflection and of, you know, kind of, mm. um, you know, monolithically dominated by a single ideology. And, and so they, you know, they devote a large part of the book to sort of troubling that in various ways. And I think are, are often successful at, at doing that. Um, as, as we said earlier, although I think their, their premises are flawed. Um, but what they then do is kind of apply this model actually back. So we see them with 18th century Europe, right? Implying that, um, this was somehow, you know, this, um, extremely tumultuous, uh, continent in this period where, you know, you already had significant differentiation of, of political systems. Obviously you had just undergone a s- several century long period of kind of religious tumult, which often brought with it, mm-hmm. you know, questionings of previously assumed hierarchical structures around the church and so on. Um, that, that it was somehow just the space of like total lockstep ideological conformity that could only be shaken up by this kind of, um, you know, this appearance of this, this other who, who challenged it with this, this, um, this set of alternatives that it could simply not have conceived otherwise. So, you know, in a sense, it kind of inverts the, uh, some kind of, narrative of colonialism where, you know, first you have this kind of rigidly hierarchical, ideologically conformist society that's incapable of imagining any other possibilities. And then, you know, this one person comes in and introduces Christianity or civilization or science or whatever, and, you know, causes them to radically reassess. So it's, it's a weird just kind of narrative of which, which accepts this, you know, which, which I, I again think that their own premises should, should actually be an argument against accepting anything like this narrative, right? Because, um, if, if, if we're supposed to assume that people, um, you know, at all times in all places have, you know, sort of experimented with different kinds of, different forms of social organization and so on, you know, it, it seems like they're saying that that's true except as of like, the 16th or 17th century in Europe when suddenly everything yeah. just became the same. 
I mean, it's yeah. it's very odd, or it became the same for a little while, except then the French Revolution happened. I mean, it's yeah. it, it it I mean, and it's like and it's like they think on one hand that this I guess the 17th century was stuck until the French Revolution, which was the result of the indigenous critique, and then somehow we're stuck today too, and so we're mm-hmm. kind of like the Ancien Régime French, and so we need a healthy new dose of this critique. I mean, it, it just. It's it's extremely confused, and I would say also kind of at odds with a lot of their other arguments. Um, yeah, well, th- this brings to mind something. I had a classmate in grad school, Divya Cherian, who would repeatedly ask in frustration, why is it that Europe has history and the rest of the world has culture, right? If you suppose that history is dynamic and culture is sort of frozen and, and ahistorical. And I always thought that was a wonderful question and you know that clearly a lot of people still are sort of trapped in that mindset right history uh history happens in europe it's dynamic it's dialectical the rest of the world has culture uh but to me the implicit response then is uh everyone has history right every all parts of the world have evolving societies and events and ruptures uh but but yeah it seems that maybe Graeber and Wengro have done this full inversion, right? Where everybody else has history. Europe has culture, right? Europe is trapped in its mythology Uh, as opposed to, you know, I guess my inclination, maybe this is easy for me to say, but my inclination is to say, well, everyone has history, but a lot of history is how societies perpetuate themselves and how they create frameworks of thought and mythology and ritual that uh, maintain a social order, right? And uh, maybe there's some sort of even-handed way, right? There's an even-handed way of looking at the West and the rest, right? But this 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 book is this book is not there. <laughs> it is quite uh, occidentalist in, yeah. in that way. And I mean, so Rob Henderson has a review which he concludes as follows. Um, The book approvingly states that before the spread of agriculture, humans were not thoughtless or superstitious automatons helplessly reacting to external stimuli and trapped by the status quo or the circumstances of their culture. Our ancestors exercised choice about how they organized their societies. Some opted for more egalitarian structures, others favored hierarchy, others switched between the two orientations depending on weather and food availability. Extending this logic... It's possible that the humans who built and maintain the current structures of society are not thoughtlessly upholding the status quo either. That is, we're not stuck in a system of hierarchies and conspicuous inequalities. Rather, humans today might also be exercising choice, maintaining and appreciating our current institutions and governments, however imperfect they may be. It would seem odd for the authors to claim that the humans of the past were politically self-conscious while humans of the present are automatons. What if people witnessed what anarchy looks like um, and decided they prefer to live in states. If so, then perhaps it's time to reconsider the belief that humans ever got stuck. So, I mean, I guess this is one articulation of this set of criticisms. Um, I mean, I think, you know, that, that sort of sums up the, the weirdness of this argument, right? That it, it, it has to posit that the very things it denies are the case for all of these other times and places are, are in fact the case for us, right? And, you know, part of how I, um, you know, I, 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 there's a part of this that seems to be related to this kind of, you know, notion of capitalist realism or, 
you know, certain ideas that were particularly current like 10 years ago, right? Where the idea is that, well, because we can't imagine other kinds of, you know, the problem is, and this again, I think is a very Graybarian point that there's supposedly, according to him, there's this kind of impoverishment of imagination of different social possibilities. And so the responsibility of anthropology as he sees it is to kind of awaken people to the wide range of possibilities that exist, right? And thus kind of return us to the supposed prior state in which allegedly other societies existed, right? Which is just kind of seeing the smorgasbord of of forms of social organization Mm -hmm. that you can sort of pick and choose from. And so, you know, I think we've kind of gone over why that, that itself doesn't seem like a very convincing model. But then I think there's also an interesting question here, which I'd be curious to get your take on, which is, you know, is this... Like to what I, I think I was once maybe more persuaded by this idea that we're somehow stuck or this kind of capitalist realism thesis. Um, and I don't know, for various reasons, I'm, I'm kind of less, I'm, I'm kind of less convinced that it is at all useful for understanding what's going on in the world today. But I'm curious what you think of that. Like just the, is there something to the idea that we're stuck and that this is related to a sort of impoverishment of the imagination that prevents us from glimpsing alternative social possibilities? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that my, I'm certainly inclined to agree that there is a kind of a sclerotic state of, of political thought in, let's say the past 25 years or so. Um, but that's a hard point to demonstrate. It's one of those things where I thought, uh, I'm inclined to agree that that's true, that we are stuck in some broad sense. But I would like if this book made me more persuaded of that than I was already. Whereas it seems that they kind of take it for granted. There's sort of this atmosphere of frustration, right? Which partly was expressed in the Occupy movement, this kind of just... Uh, expressive demonstration of dissatisfaction and this attempt to create a little kind of alternate utopia in Zuccotti Park or wherever. Uh, I, I think that they sort of take for granted that, that climate of opinion, you could say, among the sort of middle brow and upper middle brow, uh, intelligentsia, right? The, uh, and, and that they, they draw on that, but I don't think that they make the case. Right. And it's I and to go back to the the seasonality for a moment, um, I feel like there there's there's so many interesting implications to it where they say, oh, look at how some societies cycle through different modes of organization in the seasons. And that means that they are that this keeps alive the sort of reflective sense of possibility and play uh, as opposed to. An alternate way to interpret it would be to say uh, their material mode of subsistence is different at different times of year, and they create different social organizations that accord with those different material <laughs> modes of subsistence, whether it's hunting or gardening or whatever. And you could equally take it as confirmation that people uh, fall into habits that makes sense practically and materially. And then they develop mythologies and rituals to explain uh, the the fact that they have fallen into these habits. And 
for myself today, you know, um, I, I get very frustrated when people come up with these rationales about why we have things like the electoral college, which A, are not accurate and B, like don't matter. It's like the, these are so irrational, but people come up with mythologies in order to rationalize why things work the way they do in their society. And I don't think that's always necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but it's a prevalent part of human society. It's sometimes good, sometimes bad, and you have to really grapple with it. And you have to make people self-conscious, like, okay, you're drawing on a mythology here in order to rationalize why your world works the way it does. And that that's difficult, you know? And when I do myths of the month, uh, they get many different sorts of reactions, and a lot of people like them. But a common reaction with some of them, like the Enlightenment, and capitalism, a very common reaction is that people say, no, you're wrong. And then they just restate the myth. They just say, they just iterate it again as, as if that was a refutation. And I, I, I guess what I'm ultimately, what I'm just trying to say about Graeber and Wengro is that they don't seem to, uh, they don't seem to see how, how myths are woven into society and how, they also are connected to and reflect our material modes of production, right? And the relationships that we've developed around our material modes of production and that tackling them and getting people to question them is very difficult, right? And, and it seems more like they're assuming that certain people already don't like our mythology and are already aggravated with it. And they're sort of offering an alternative idea of uh, mythology, right? Here's an alternative myth of the Enlightenment. It really came from the Wendat. It didn't come from Rousseau, right? Would you say so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, and I think that is, I mean, another another point that's kind of interesting is, I mean, the book has been really, um, has has had a very positive reception. Um, I, mm -hmm. I remarked on Twitter at one point that it must be the only book that has blurbs from both um Nassim Nicholas Taleb and Noam Chomsky. <laughs> but so it, it's, it's been really, um, I mean, so it's, I mean, that's always interesting to know, right? For a book that claims to be kind of disrupting all of the standard narratives, it's been extremely well received by basically the entire kind of, you know, left half of the political spectrum, even though as, as we were talking about before, it's, you know, it really kind of pulls the rug out from under any kind of Marxist analysis by, you know, basically decoupling mode of production from social organization um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or, or political organization. And it, you know, it also, I mean, it's, it, I, I suppose one way to think about it is, you know, I, I, it doesn't, you know, Graeber was sort of this architect, ideological architect of, of Occupy. Um, obviously Occupy was, I mean, it, it's complicated to assess its legacy. Um, in its, in its immediate practical. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's fair to say it was a failure in, in the terms that Graeber imagined it, which are the terms of forging a kind of alternative, um, mode of so a, a sort of um you know creating these kind of um nodes where alternative forms of social organization could be experimented with 
Like that, mm-hmm. I think if, if we want to say Occupy was successful, we'd have to think about how it, you know, brought about certain, a certain heightened attention to things like inequality, you know, but, but that, that was basically incorporated into kind of, you know, a sort of stand, a sort of mainstream left liberal walking back of, of certain like neoliberal assumptions and, you know, support for austerity policies like that. I think we could say like Occupy probably had something to do with that shift. Um, although to what extent it reflected, you know, a, 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 a larger, um, disgust with the sort of third way politics, um, of, of the previous couple decades versus to what extent it kind of made that disgust more, more politically efficacious and relevant. I don't, I don't know how to assess, but you know, the way Graeber thought about it was it's not, you know, explicitly as, as I understand it, it's, it's not about having any particular political demands about, you know, tax rates or, um, you know, bank regulation. It's about creating these encampments where new social forms can be experimented with and thus demonstrate to people that another world is possible. Right. And I would say in that sense, it was definitely not successful. Right. Because it I mean, first of all, nobody has really taken up that aspect of the project except, you know, for that um, few weeks in Seattle where it, you know, literally led to like multiple murders of, <laughs> of uh, young black men. But, you know, it's so I mean, to me, that it's like that part was clearly a disaster. And that was the part that Graeber was most kind of intellectually identified with. So. You know, in this here, he seems to be pointing to something in a way more ambitious, but also in a way more modest, because what he's sort of seeming to say is like, oh, you don't have to, like, camp out with some grubby hippies in a public park to, you know, accept the premises of this kind of anarchist volunteerism, because, in fact, we can have a society that's informed by those things that's maybe not even that different from what we already have. Right. Because. We can just uh, keep having a sort of, um, I don't know, complex, differentiated, you know, high tech society, but it can become more egalitarian because, you know, that's what they did in uh, Teotihuacan or whatever, right? Because, I mean, it's like we've got the whole passage about Teotihuacan, which they describe as having, in in their terms, like abandoned, um, you know, sort of uh ritualized sacrifice and a sort of priestly hierarchy in favor of what they call social housing right <laughs> yeah yeah conveniently i i think there absolutely there are two things sort of about the present and the past that that speak to what you're saying that when it comes to occupy you know it started with the encampment at, at Zuccotti park and it was in a public space and the people sat down and refused to leave. And so I think that there's this, it, it had this, eventually it took on this kind of rhetorical power because it made it impossible to ignore the sort of the sense of discontent, um, the, the demand for public space. Right. Uh, but it's also significant that it was in, a city plaza, not in a workplace, right? There was no proposal to transfer power or control over the process of production, right? Economic production. It was, it was this purely sort of demonstrative expressive event, which uh, I'm not saying is, is bad, 
uh, or unimportant, but it's, I think it's in line with this sort of, uh, this particular kind of anarchist sensibility, right? That, uh, the world will transform when we just sort of withdraw and create, uh, an alternative model for ourselves and that we don't, we shouldn't be thinking about seizing control of the means of production. Right. But yeah, with the Occupy movement, it's, you know, I, I think it did have an impact like you're saying. Um, but at, but if I, but if I was a 1955 Marxist, which I'm also not, but clearly there's this counterpoint from the Marxist camp where they could say, this is all just performative. You need to be doing what workers did in the 30s, which is sit down in your factory, <laughs> sit down in your workplace and demand control, which it did not do. Uh, and it sort of went into this this sort of, you know, intellectual, iconoclastic intellectual kind of milieu and not into uh, concrete uh, political action. Um, and and to go back uh you know, you mentioned Teotihuacan, which encapsulates a lot of interesting things, right? That Teotihuacan is this city. We don't know a lot about it. There aren't written records, but they built massive monuments, these pyramids of the sun and moon, this monumental walkway. And then they argue uh, something's changed politically. And instead, they refocused on sort of social housing for the ordinary folk. And and again, it seems like this kind of good, almost, you know, anarchist, anarcho-syndicalist society. Uh, and I was like, that's great. I'm, that's wonderful. I'm so glad they did that. But when people go to Teotihuacan today, they go to see the pyramids. They want to see the massive monuments. Right. They want to see the the enormous projects that were built to the glory of the gods and the rulers. Right. And there's even this little passage at the end of the book. Maybe if I can, if you don't mind me just finding it to read this. Uh, there's almost this little summation passage they slip in where they give us this judgment about what a good society uh, should look like. Right. And what. um what 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 is really valuable in a society and they say okay maybe there's this better future ahead of us right that we can make a better future and they say who knows perhaps if our species does endure and we one day look backwards from this as yet unknowable future aspects of the remote past that now seem like anomalies such as bureaucracies that work on a community scale, cities governed by neighborhood councils, systems of government where women hold a preponderance of positions, or forms of land management based on caretaking rather than ownership and extraction, will seem like the really significant breakthroughs, and great stone pyramids or statues more like historical curiosities. And so there, you know, they're coming down to this value judgment that it's like, oh, having a really good cooperative society or a society where women hold the formal offices, this is what really matters. And forget about pyramids and monuments and uh, that stuff. Uh, but, 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 you know, people love the pyramids. <laughs> and I think that there's a lot of judgment here towards the people who built the pyramids, who maybe they were in a really hierarchical society. Maybe there was all this domination. Maybe we can judge them 
as as sort of dupes or manipulated by by power. But you know what? Maybe maybe they really felt that they were part of something enormous and meaningful, and they built something that people are still amazed by five thousand years later. Like maybe that has value too. Um, and I'm not saying one side or the other there is right, but it just seems to encapsulate what what we've been saying that they sort of take for granted that their audience will be amenable to one side and, and not the other, and that they don't have to make the argument that the pyramids were a waste of time, right? That's more or less what they're implying, right? Whether it's in Egypt or in Teotihuacan, that sort of stuff is a big waste and we should just get beyond it. Which, which again, I think is is related to their devaluing of of the transcendent, um, of aesthetics mm-hmm. right. and their general sense that, you know, again, it, it, it's, um, I mean, even their, their sense of like play would seem to be impoverished in this way. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. okay, well, surely like the incredible feats that all of these cultures have undertaken, you know, for at least partly aesthetic reasons, um, are, are remarkable displays of that kind of impulse, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Towards kind of play and creativity. And yet here they're sort of dismissing it, which I'd say is also striking in relation to what I brought up before, which is Graeber's elsewhere, um, kind of enthusiastic sort of modernist sensibility, right? Where he, I mean, in other words, like the, those kind of arguments could be used to dismiss, like, for example, the idea of, of, uh, you know, going to space, right? Which, mm-hmm. you know, he elsewhere sort of argues, well, that, you know, the value of that is it's, um, it's sort of power and potential for kind of expanding the frontiers of the imagination beyond, beyond its sort of, um, any more immediate practical gains that might come from it, right? And so, you know, I, I think that kind of, you know, brushing aside of like the great pyramids is, is sort of a remarkable, <laughs> um, counter to that argument that he's made elsewhere, right? And, and I think it's a good example of how, again, their idea of sort of play and, and so on is, is extremely limited in this, in this context by their disregard for aesthetics, their disregard for any kind of notion of transcendence as having, as having real value to people as opposed to just being sort of something that's instrumentalized to subjugate people. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's that. So again, I think part of why it's um part of why it can be so widely embraced is it's ultimate implications are pretty vague, right? It's like, we just have to, I mean, first of all, it it's very self flattering to intellectuals and, you know, if your argument is basically, oh, we just, what we need to do is not fundamentally change the mode of production of society. What we need to do is open up people's imaginations to other possibilities and help, you know, help get them unstuck from this rigid, you know, framework they all have. Well, that's a very, um, if you're a, you know, if you're an academic or a, a opinion writer or a journalist, then that's like a, a very, uh, a very nice, way of you know defining your mission right um which which also (laughs) kind of gets you off the hook from being committed to any particular um sort of material project in a sense right Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. because if if any kind of material organization is is just fine as long as it preserves these freedoms 
And as long as people mm-hmm. can sort of imagine the possibility of, and thereby, you know, make possible the, the, uh, the potential for change when it, when it becomes, I mean, not even necessary when it, when it, you know, when they're whatever in their, uh, whimsical sort of <laughs> playful approach when they, when they decide to just, uh, reorganize things for the hell of it, then they can do that. Like that's, um, so, and I, and in a way, I think these are kind of opposed, right? That that passage you just read does seem to apply, imply there are certain particular things that we should be aiming for as a society, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. our society is failing insofar as it's not doing those things. Whereas at other points, it seems to be, well, the problem is just that we're stuck in this one way, right? There are many possible ways of doing things that would be fine. The bad thing is to get stuck in just one way. So those seem like not, mm-hmm. not entirely I mean, or perhaps even opposed arguments. Yeah, they didn't work out these tensions, right? And they don't, I don't think that they grapple with the potential trade-off, right? That people, people sometimes do give up freedoms because they see, because they think that they will get something greater, more inspiring, more beautiful, Right. If if they agree to uh, cooperate in a system that is not entirely individualistic, you know, and that does not that where some people are subordinated to others. And I know that they you know, they've made this whole elaborate argument saying that's not necessary. Right. Saying that you don't have to give up freedom in order to have a sophisticated, large scale functioning society. But then, but then at the same time, yeah, there's this tension where on the other hand, they seem to be saying pyramids, statues, those things are, are needless because they are expressions of hierarchy. They're expressions of subordination, right? But what if people want those things? <laughs> you know, what if people want to be part of a grand project and realize a grand vision? What if they want to build a massive tomb to memorialize their king for whatever reason? You know, uh, I guess, I mean, I judge people all the time. We all do. We all judge people all the time. But I try as a historian to be as non-judgmental as possible and say, like, look, maybe, maybe people really think uh, their king is awesome. Or maybe they create the fantasy and the myth that their king is awesome because that allows them to do things and say things that are meaningful to them. Right. And this, you know, again, I think goes along with um, the point about constraints, right? That they seem to imagine... Or they don't seem to imagine that there can be a kind of dynamic and productive relationship between constraints and freedom, right? Which again, I think is, is a good illustration of why their, their notion of play is somewhat impoverished because they can't imagine that, um, the, the constraints governing, you know, perhaps quite rigidly a, a certain social system could also be productive, right, in a in an intellectual sense, in an aesthetic sense, et cetera. Right. Um and that yeah, you know, and, and again that it 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 just um it and to me that kind of completely I mean it makes the metaphor of play even kind of nonsensical because all of the forms of play that we know about are and, and can observe in the world are made possible by often quite rigid constraints. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that there's, you know, all these things like we've been saying, the interplay between the individual and the collective, uh, the role of, you know, the, and there is a passage where they discuss how in some societies there can be oddballs, right? People 
who are extremely eccentric, uh, and then they can be then accepted into the community as playing a sort of prophetic role or a jester role, um, which is is valid enough. I mean, I I I will take I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that that's an accurate description of these societies. I believe in Africa that they were talking about, um, but but. But at the same time, it, that seems to speak to what you're saying, that, well, yeah, there's eccentricity, there's rebellion, and then societies evolve and adapt to to harness that or to integrate it into the workings of their world. And there's this sort of dialectic, this push and pull dialectic of of the distinctive individual and the community and its its practices and its rituals, right? Uh, so it's interesting that it, it seems like a, in that way, it seems like a very unanthropological book, right? <laughs> it seems to run counter to the, the image that most of us have of, of anthropologists, which Graeber probably would embrace, right? He would say, of course, uh, I'm overthrowing the paradigm, the, I'm rejecting the, the assumptions of mainstream anthropology. But I guess I would say, well, uh, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? There, we can gain insights about, yeah, about the push and pull, the give and take between individuals and collectives and how, how collectives, uh, perpetuate themselves in this, um, by in, in different ways accommodating or grappling with rebellion, dispute, disagreement, change. Yeah. And I mean, it might be worth, uh, we can maybe start wrapping up, but revisiting this, you know, central to this whole argument is this idea of these three primordial freedoms, which they say for most of human history were simply assumed, right? And they, they say that these are the freedom to move, the freedom to disobey, and the freedom to create or transform social relationships. So, I mean, I say it a couple of ways where I, you know, the, and again, the, the, their sort of key example of these is these um, North American indigenous societies, right? But then, as I pointed out in their own descriptions, they actually refer to all of these constraints, right? And then you mentioned others, like such as, you know, the the um, the sort of gendered distribution of tools and and sort of productive activities, right? Um, which, you know, okay, so. Um, the freedom to disobey, like, what does that actually mean? Well, the way the examples that he gives are basically that if a chief in one of these societies tells somebody to do something, again, they can tell them to go get stuffed and there's no enforcement mechanism, right? But then what's going on when people uh, perceive there to be and follow an obligation to, you know, hunt and not hunt certain animals based on their totemic affiliation or to use or not use certain tools based on gender and so on and so forth. Like, there is something that is apparently not generally disobeyed, right? <laughs> In that context. And yet they're, they don't seem to be able to account for what that is or how, or how exactly that works. It just, it, it's like they just brush, they kind of just brush by it without any comment. Um, after having claimed that these are these kind of hyper libertarian societies where people can just kind of do what they want. Mm -hmm. Um, so that that was just kind of to revisit that point. Um, did you have thoughts about these other two 
or other thoughts on that or these other two freedoms, the freedom to move and the freedom to create or transform social relationships? Yeah. I mean, well, some, some of it we've already, we've already talked about that their societies can have very sophisticated ways of obtaining compliance uh, that aren't necessarily just, yeah, a guy sitting on a throne giving you a command. Um, and, and I, I give them the benefit of the doubt that adult men in a society like the Wendat or the Osage have a great degree of individual freedom, uh, but that I don't agree with the, the, the value judgment that they lay over it, that that is the natural, correct default way for societies to operate, and that there's, there's something inherently wrong with societies that, that are, that have more of a command structure, uh, you know, if that's their opinion, that's great. Like, fine, I respect that. But they really don't argue for it. They just, they just cast that as the natural correct way for society to work and, and like leave it there. And as for the freedom to move on that point, um, it's an interesting one to think about. And obviously there's discussion in the air about open borders, right? Freedom of movement today. Uh, so it's an interesting one that they, that they put in there. Uh, but when I reflected on it, I thought, well, this is another instance where they're not taking account of the importance of the natural environment and material survival, right? Because yeah, sure, the Osage can get up and leave and say we're gonna, because they're on the Great Plains and there's all these food sources just out there. If you're in Egypt, you don't have any freedom to move. You get up and leave. It's the Sahara Desert. You're not going nowhere. You are stuck because you are tied to that society and that social order for providing you with food and water. You can't just get up and leave. So I, I, that was, uh, to me, a glaring instance of, um, not, not taking into account how nature and our relationship and our survival dependency on the natural environment changes the kind of society that's possible right and irrigation dependent and there's this other argument that they briefly allude to and don't discuss which is the Carl Wittfogel argument in oriental despotism the idea of hydraulic society where he basically argues that societies that depend on irrigation need a lot of organization and a lot of management and command whereas societies where in in different environments where you get year-round rainfall in, in that environment, someone can just pick up and leave and, and go survive in the fields or the forest, raise some animals. You can't do that if you're in Egypt or Mesopotamia. And so in Bitfogel's argument, that means you get a more authoritarian and bureaucratic society. And I think there's a lot to that argument. It's been criticized. And of, of course, there are many exceptions and caveats, right? But, uh, but it just struck me that Graeber and Wengrove seem very cavalier in just ignoring that that basic uh factor of how we live and how societies live yeah and i mean the other thing i thought was odd was i mean so again you know they do refer to even even within the context of these kind of idealized north american societies you know they do refer to certain constraints right um you know you, you like okay you can go attach yourself to some other band right but you're also kind of limited in which members of that band you can attach yourself to yeah. by this kind of shared totemic system. So this kind of freedom to move, even in that context, proves a little bit more complicated, um, as yeah. w- which would also relate to the whole freedom to um, to uh, 
sorry, I'm just going to check the exact phrasing to uh, create or transform social relationships, right? Like if you're operating in this totemic system, like I just don't, I don't see how either of those are, are sort of, you know, make sense in quite the way they seem to be phrasing it there. Um, but, you know, the other thing that I find odd about this is like, I mean, if you just think about any sort of broad consensus of anthropological evidence, you know, essentially in, in non or pre sort of market societies, you know, the sort of central organizing structures tend to be those of kinship, right? Mm, And so, um, okay, you might have a certain kind of freedom to move, but that's highly limited by your sort of embeddedness in certain kinds of kinship networks. And so the totemic, you know, affiliation would be sort of an example of that, but you know, generally people, I mean, what do they mean by freedom to move, like freedom of the whole band to move, freedom of individuals to move? Like it's, it's cause I mean, okay, there's a kind of freedom in the sense that like there isn't a fucking border control or something like that, but there are other limiting, fa- I mean, you brought up the environmental ones. I would say there are also other social limiting factors, right? Yeah. Um, like why, if you go back not that far in history, the worst punishment often thought it was worse than death was exile. Right. Why? Well, because exile basically detaches you from your entire social and kinship network in which your life has sort of meaning and purpose. And so, you know, it's it's maybe kind of hard for us to imagine what exile or banishment means. Right. In those contexts where it's it's really conceived of as literally a punishment that's kind of an alternative to or equivalent to death because it is social death. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this freedom to move just seems extremely abstract and when you try to get down to particulars, it kind of falls apart because it's actually pretty hard to imagine. I mean, other than just some kind of trivial idea that like, oh, you didn't have border guards or or something like that, which I mean, even there, you know, you had you had walled cities, you had, you know, territorial um, distinctions in terms of who was basically accepted as the legitimate, you know, users of certain land and who wasn't like these things all existed. Um, so yeah. this idea that freedom to move was kind of this absolute thing taken for granted is just seems very odd because as soon as you try to pin it down, particularly, I mean, okay. So like the Mongol hordes, I guess they had freedom to move. <laughs> right. But, but what does that mean? <laughs> like, what, what are they trying to say? I just, I don't, I don't really yeah. get what it, what it means specifically. Yeah, well, and you mentioned the phrase social death, and obviously that recalls, uh, or, or, I believe it's Orlando Patterson. Yeah, if I yeah. remember right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that in many societies, slavery is, uh, a, it's a, he says it's, it stems from social death, and that it is rooted ultimately in being removed from your original social context, and hence losing the ties the identity, the the rights and privileges that came with being a member of a certain society, right? And when you're taken out of your society, you become like an object. You kind of lose your humanity, right? So I think that the their whole discussion of these freedoms, it's it has the same sort of problem as their discussion of, of myth and politics that they, they don't seem to be taking account of how people are deeply constituted by the society in which they exist, right? And how they imagine themselves and operate 
in the world is is deeply uh, defined by that and that it's not so easy to just operate as this free floating citizen of the world intellectual <laughs> it's not like everybody is ibn batuta you know not even ibn, ibn batuta is ibn batuta like uh you know th- it, it, they're taking almost a kind of you could say like a god's eye view that like we are these intellectuals who have somehow risen above the constraints of our society and can evaluate everything from this massive distance uh and they're not either they don't take account of or they don't really appreciate how people are are shaped and attached to their particular social world right like like as you said such that exile is seen as a kind of the next thing to death right the next thing to death and sure maybe in many societies you were free to leave if you wanted to that doesn't mean that the next place you show up is going to take you right you're a foreigner you're an outsider if things may go very poorly for you when you just cross over into some other nation or city or tribe whoever it is uh you're an outsider right yeah and it's so yeah it's it's very odd again to see that that claim sort of abstracted from ideas about kinship and so on um, and and the way that kinship is kind of your your fundamental social sustenance right in these these yeah. kind of pre or non market organized societies. And then, I mean, the other, you know, as I said, I think this one about the free, I mean, I think this, the freedom to, um, create or transform social relationships is maybe the most fraught because again, you know, as I said, well, that in, in these societies they conceive of as the most free, they also point to all of these constraints that are both obligations and prohibitions that have to do with your, your sort of totemic, clan and how that, you know, defines who you can and can't associate with. And I mean, presumably if what they were claiming was true, was true of the society they present as like the most free or the most fully expressive of these freedoms, then people could just say, fuck this. I don't like this totem. I'm going to go over to that one. I mean, maybe they could, I don't really know much about it, but like, if so, then what does it mean that apparently most people didn't because, uh, these totems, I mean, if, if they were, if, if they were a consistent thing that, you know, defined many aspects of this culture over a long period, apparently most people weren't just like deciding to jump over to the other totem clan every, every couple of years or whatever. No, and that's a very, it's a very kind of consumerist model of and how you would imagine people operate, that it's all this kind of free individual choice. You know, I think I'll pick the, the eagle clan or the, the otter clan or whatever. Uh, I, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't translate so easily. You know, people are not all out there just self-constructing their own identity as a matter of taste and individual choice. Maybe they can manage sometimes, but I don't think it's that common. And, uh, and most people don't want that. I mean, most people don't want to have this free floating identity where I can, I can just recreate uh, imaginary societies at a whim. People want affirmation from their community, their kin group, their language group, uh, I know I'm making generalizations here, of course, but I, I think they're, I think they're justified. I think they're reasonable generalizations. And, um, and, and this also just brings up, I shouldn't get into it because it's, it's 
too weird and complicated, but they, they, they also in the first chapter, they make this reference to people who had been taken captive in different indigenous American societies. And they claim that almost invariably people wanted to stay with the indigenous society and not go back to European society. And they even cite this thesis, which I looked at. It's very good. It's a wonderful thesis by this guy who was a librarian, I think, at LSU, about people who were taken captive on both sides by Europeans and indigenous people and whether or not they fully integrated into the society or left and went back to where they came from. And their characterization is just false. This this is not what the thesis says. The thesis says people went both ways. And the crucial thing that made the difference, whether they stayed in their captor society or returned, was the age at which they were taken captive. And if you were taken captive as a child before puberty, it was very likely that you would fully enmesh yourself in the new society and stay there for life. Whereas if you were already something of an adult, puberty or post-puberty, you would not, and you would more likely want to return to your birth, your birth group. And when people asked why, why did you choose this way or that way? They didn't say, I think this society is superior to this one. They were not comparing one civilization against another. They were talked, they talked about their personal relationships, their marriage, their parents, their brothers and sisters. It was a contest between personal emotional ties. And if someone chose to stay, very often it was because they had already married and had children in that society. So it's like you're saying, it was not like these people were political philosophers. I mean, maybe, maybe some of them were, I'm sure they were brilliant people, very intellectual, but they were not weighing which society in the abstract do I think is better. They were weighing what personal ties have the strongest claim on me. Right. And so, yeah, again, weirdly, I, I think I would say that they're, you know, it, it, it's as if their idea, I mean, which is just so bizarre coming from an anthropologist <laughs> that sort of yeah. they're, they're just kind yeah. of assuming this like market logic by which you, you make this kind of abstract value comparison <laughs> and thereby determine mm-hmm. which society you want to be part of. As opposed to, as you're saying, doing so through these kinds of evaluations of, you know, that, that are, that are rooted in your kinship affiliations, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, then the other one that I found odd is like about this idea that people had the freedom to, um, to change social relationships, right? Or to, um, create or transform social relationships. I mean, I guess part of what they're suggesting, I mean, I think they're also pointing to something like, you know, revolution or the way that like societies like Teotihuacan or they argue this kind of evolution of North American societies that ended with the, you know, what Europeans found when they arrived in North America, which, you know, was, was also, they argue a kind of um, disaggregation of this larger kind of priestly and hierarchical civilization into these sort of more autonomous bands that still had certain cultural links with each other. So, but I think it's very odd to claim, okay, if there's some sort of revolution or some sort of massive shift, right, um, that took place then, 
it just seems odd to claim that that's reflective of a freedom. I mean, presumably there were things about that that were difficult, violence, conflictual, right? That, you know, I mean, again, because this is not something they have particularly strong evidence for, it's largely archaeological um, and, and derived to some extent from myth. They don't, um, like, I, I just don't know what it means to claim that. Like, did the fact that the French Revolution happened mean that there was a freedom to transform social relationships with which the French revolutionaries took advantage of? No, I mean, I think they would argue the opposite, right? That, that there was not that freedom and then the French Revolution somehow brought about that freedom. But the point is, it's as if they're claiming that kind of, you know, in, in all of these other times and places you could, I mean, or, or maybe it's the seasonality example, right? That you could just kind of seamlessly move from these different, between these different forms of social organization without anyone getting upset or trying to preserve the previous one. And this just seems, you know, it, it seems um, historically extremely problematic to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you're bringing up a really important issue that I'm not, I'm still sort of thinking about partly because I just read some of debt as well. And it's this, what is the role of uh, violence in their philosophy? And there are points in the book where they discuss sort of a kingly or heroic societies like outside the big urban civilizations, right? So they argue that you had these, these uh, riverine urban societies in Mesopotamia, and then you had these so-called barbarian kingly and heroic societies around them. And there are points where they describe the violence of sacrifice and, and it's, uh, it can be very shocking. Uh, and, but they never, they never, uh, really address that as a philosophical issue of like, can, can violence be a legitimate part of the society you want to live in? Like at all ever? Or are we just assuming that violence is always bad? Uh, and, and that, and that states, Right. Authoritarian states always necessarily work on violence. It seems as if that that seems to be kind of the background assumption in debt in Graeber's book, Debt, that uh, if if something is backed by state action, that always just means violence and repression. In this book, they they discuss and break down how there are different modes of exercising power over other people. And in their view, sovereignty or the exclusive control of violence is just one of them, right? And then there are these others of control of knowledge, personal charisma. And so it seems more nuanced in that way. But but there's never a grappling, right, with like uh, uh, these cities in China that they describe, which seem to have been authoritarian. They had palaces and temples. And then suddenly those systems broke down and the temples were torn down and things became egalitarian. Yeah, okay, that happened. And probably a lot of people got killed in that process, right? There was some equivalent to a guillotine probably going on here that were they were people ritually killed this uh elite. Um what yeah, what do they what do they think about that? Is that okay? Like is that, you know, are we talking about violent revolution? It it seems a bit different from Zuccotti Park, right? Uh and I, I think that it's left as kind of a mystery. Don't you think so? Like, what is their uh, sense about violence in history? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it, I mean, it, in other words, the implication of this idea that, you know, 
I suppose prior to relatively recent in history, people had this freedom to transform social relationships. Uh, you know, again, it's it's pretty ambiguous what that freedom would mean because I suppose one way of reading it would be that everybody would just be fine. Everybody would be cool with it, right? <laughs> and and so <laughs> yeah, in that case, right. in that case, there would not be presumably violence, right? Because everybody would Better just be like, all right, exactly, right, right, right. And so. You know, that just seems like a sort of ahistoric or it, it's, it's just unclear again how you concretize that notion of this freedom existing because it, um, and, and, you know, it, it, because, okay, we can, it, I, I think it's fine to say that that's a fundamental freedom, right? And, and then, and then you would have to argue something like, well, you know, being able to change the social organization when it ceases to work might necessitate some bloodshed every once in a while. You know, that's basically like what Jefferson said, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's a legitimate position, right? That, that the mm-hmm. need to, to alter social relations is something that is a value that, you know, is worth shedding blood for sometimes. Um, but, yeah, as you said, they don't really confront that aspect of it. And so it's it's kind of unclear what the freedom actually means in, in concrete terms, because it's clear that when these kind of social transformations have happened, they've met significant resistance at, at many points in history. And, yeah. you know, that's yeah, and- I mean, I mean, take like the early let's. Maybe here's an example. Like, what about the early Christians, right? So they do this thing of, of creating a new, I mean, they, they're pursuing these freedoms, right? They're creating and transforming social relationships. They're, they're, you know, creating these new, um, social formations, which are quite, you know, radical in some ways, although not, not in a way that, you know, necessarily violently threatens the power structure. And yet, you know, they're of course met with significant violence on the part of those in power. So, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that's, well, and, the, <laughs> that's, and they that's, shrewdly, yeah. the Christians, it's an interesting example because the Christians shrewdly transform violent suffering into sacrifice, right? That we are, we, they present it as a sacrifice of the body for the sake of the spiritual mission of, of Christ and the church. And, uh, you know, when social revolutionaries of one sort or another, like you said, they, they tend to meet resistance, right? There are people with interests at stake who don't want transformation. And that can mean, uh, violence as a practical tactic, right? It can also mean viol- that you use violence as a, a ritual act, a symbolic act to show that you are uh, releasing yourself from the old order. And I think that that's sort of, you know, guillotines have this uh, symbolic charge, right? There's still this symbol of revolution today. It wasn't, it became much more than just a practical way to lop someone's head off. And uh, yeah, I think um, vi- violence seems to be caught up in both ways, practically and symbolically. It's caught up with this question of transformation and overthrow of, of the world order. And uh, maybe they just didn't want to get into that. <laughs> they didn't want to get into that debate, right, about <clears throat> revolutionary violence, which is very, it's it's a caught up in, in, in Marxism, right? Well, I just remembered and dug up this passage that um, 
that I think might be interesting in relation to this, which I had been thinking about in a different way, actually kind of in relation to my my points about how they don't really have a very they, they clearly are resistant to kind of theorizing about human nature, right? So that was kind of the context in which I thought about this passage initially, but it relates to what you've been bringing up here. So they say, quote, people have an unfortunate tendency to see the successful prosecution of arbitrary violence as in some sense divine, or at least to identify it with some kind of transcendental power. We might not fall on our knees before any thug or bully who manages to wreak havoc with impunity, but insofar as such a figure does manage to establish themselves as genuinely standing above the law, in other words, as sacred or set apart, another apparently universal principle kicks in. In order to keep him apart from the muck and mire of ordinary human life, the same figure becomes surrounded with restrictions. Violent men generally insist on tokens of respect, but tokens of respect taken to the cosmological level tend to become severe limits on one's freedom to act violently or indeed in most other ways. So, I mean, there are a couple of odd phrases here. First is this, people have an unfortunate tendency. So apparently they're describing a really significant factor and sort of constraint, I would say, which at least apparently derives from some sort of intrinsic human nature as they're describing it. Right. Um, and they're just saying, Oh, it's unfortunate. I mean, maybe they're saying perhaps people are like this and it's, it's sort of unfortunate that they are. <laughs> and then further down, they say, um, you know, another apparently universal principle kicks in. So they're, they're sort of observing some way that power functions here, which, I would I would say is somewhat at odds with their I suppose attempt to on one hand assert that certain things are are sort of natural and therefore primordial, right? And and then yeah. at the same time to um to kind of um to some extent counteract their seeming assumption that a lot of these kinds of shifts in power at least theoretically can occur without violence, right? Yeah, well, this is, you're pushing all my buttons, Jeff, <laughs> which is good, which is good. But the, I think that that passage is in their discussion of sovereignty, right? The idea that there's one mode of exercising power is through control of violence. And they seem to be kind of positing that there was sort of a primordial formation of like the earliest sovereign kings right and that basically they were violent thugs who demanded things from people but then a sort of ritual system was built around them to contain right to contain and channel and delimit that power of violence um which i uh it's very speculative right unlike a lot of the book uh, the book sort of shifts between very empirical modes and very theoretical and speculative. And I would say, yeah, that is possible. Like maybe their, their, their uh, description there is plausible that that's where kingship comes from. It's just sort of thuggery that then gets ritualized and hence integrated into a system of taboos. Right. And they use that example of the Natchez, the Natchez great son, And I thought, well, yeah, that could be. But once you acknowledge that there are these sort of human tendencies, right, these common tendencies, well, then there's all sorts of possibilities then that maybe people create kings because they want a focal point of power, ritual, symbolism. They want someone. And, you know, my 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 contrasting hypothesis, which is also speculative, 
would be more along the lines that the king is uh, a, a sort of sacrificial object. It's someone that you anticipate is going to die, and you're going to give elaborate offerings and build elaborate tombs to memorialize this specially uh, symbolically important person. And then in anticipation of that, you give them tributes and you surround them with ritual and ceremony and majesty in anticipation that they're going to be sort of your society's offering to the afterlife. You're going to send them off with in a, a grand ship or a tomb. Uh, and that, that it's more that um, the ceremonialism is universal to kingship. All kings are surrounded by ceremony and taboo and ritual objects. Not all of them have that much real political power. There are a lot of kings who are like, yeah, I'm basically just ceremonial, right? And I think that they acknowledge that sort of in a moment when they're discussing this king in Fiji and they say, well, there's this ritual where he wakes everyone up in the morning and he's the focus of attention. And then the state is the sort of attempt to extend that ritual power and primacy further and further. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting idea. I think that sounds, uh, plausible. Um, but it doesn't seem to really fit with this story that you just cited, right? Where there, the, the fundamental thing is that they are, uh, practitioners of violence and terror. And then the ceremony comes after that to sort of contain it and delimit it. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I'm very convinced by your version of things and, and it, it's really similar to the version that comes out of like Rene Girard's thinking, right? Where, <clears throat> but it, but is also grounded in all sorts of, you know, if, if you look at how, um, in various like parts of South America, when you had a captive who you're going to sacrifice and cannibalize, you know, basically they would be treated like a, like royalty, right? They would be, mm-hmm. they would have a certain period in which they were, you know, living in incredible luxury and given <clears throat> all of these um, goods and comforts that, you know, m- that most people in the tribe did not enjoy. And then, you know, at the end of that, they're, um, they're sacrificed. So, you know, this, and this was observed as a phenomenon by like some of the earliest explorers, right. And it's, um, and, and this, you know, and then there, there are versions of this in Africa too, right. Where, um, you know, you had these, these cultures in which you basically had these scapegoat kings. If you, if you read, um, Roberto Colasso's The Ruin of Kosh, like the, the central narrative that the title derives from is, is about precisely such a society where basically you had these kings, but the kings were basically always sacrifice victims in waiting. And that's partly because <laughs> they could be, you know, if there was some disaster or misfortune, then, you know, you had this, a sensibly sacred and valuable person who you could sacrifice and thus, um, you know, obtain re, you know, regain the favor of the gods or whatever. So, so yeah. this is, you know, pretty well, well observed, but I think, you know, what, what you're suggesting also relates to several points you've made, which is that they seem to assume that everybody's default attitude is this kind of, you know, again, it's this fuck you, I won't do what you tell me thing, <laughs> right? That, that basically this is, this is the, the sort of pri, you know, primary humanity, right? That we all have. And then sometimes we're kind of duped into, into, um, surrendering our sort of personal agency to, um, to authorities that manage to establish themselves as above us, right? But, you know, I think what one point you've been making throughout this discussion is, there's a completely different way of thinking about this, which is that, 
yeah, there is one part of, of, of humanity that, that seems to respond in that way to authority, but there's also a very easily observable other part, which seems quite primary and fundamental, um, because of how frequently it exhibits itself and is sort of voluntar apparently voluntarily taken up by people, which is that yeah. people actually want kings. They want, um, they want transcendent beings to which they can subordinate themselves, right? I mean, I've just been yeah. listening to um, this Martyr Maid podcast series on Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Yeah. And, you know, if if you just think about cults, like if you think about Jim Jones, if you think about Scientology, you know, you basically have people who are, I mean, particularly coming out of the 60s, you have these people who are living in this state of apparently absolute freedom, right, where <laughs> they've already told their parents fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. They're saying that to society every day. They're doing drugs. They're having sex with whoever they want, etc. right? And yet, what do these people seek out? Well, many of them seek out these voluntary authoritarian structures in which they can insert themselves, right? In which they, you know, surrender their agency to this madman, right? <laughs> Jim Jones or L. Ron Hubbard or whoever. And I mean, this is an extreme example, but you know, it's, it's a good illustration of how, yeah. right, or right, in the most extreme instance. So, you know, it, it seems like these two tendencies towards a kind of rejection of subordination and a kind of seeking of subordination are both always present, right? And so yeah, if we want to, yeah. if we want to think about, you know, again, that passage seems to just, you know, the passage I just read seems to suggest, well, people can just be kind of easily duped by these sort of unscrupulous, violent figures who, for whatever aspect of human nature that they're not really willing to try to explain or provide a theory of, people are kind of impressed by big tough guys who engage in arbitrary violence. And okay, I mean, I think there's probably something to that, but I think it's also, you have to link that to this, this larger issue, which is that people do have a tendency to, an unobservable yeah. tendency to rather than free themselves from subordination, actually actively subordinate themselves, right? And find meaning in that subordination. Yeah, yeah. I think you have to grapple with that. And I probably was already biased because as I, as I mentioned on another occasion, uh, I really, really love this book, The Ritual Process by Victor Turner, which uh, I was told to read because I researched on Freemasonry and I was told, well, you've got to read some ritual theory. And I'm like, oh, fine. So I read uh, the ritual process and I'm totally ready to not like it. I'm very skeptical about anthropology. And, and then I read it. And it's amazing. I love it. And a lot of this point, which I, that he makes that I think is so brilliant and clarifying is that people have conflicting impulses, right? People, do there is this very common tendency to want uh, e equality to want a sense of unity to merge yourself with an undifferentiated group uh and, and to feel part of a sort of uh, undivided human community uh and and to want to act out that equality uh and then at the same time to also want hierarchy and to want clear leaders and to and to want demarcation right demarcations between the genders between the generations and turner argues i think to me persuasively to me he argues that a lot of ritual uh coronation rituals initiation rituals are about reconciling 
these conflicting impulses and making it it's squaring the circle right and a lot of uh he talks a lot about coronation rituals particularly and how the initiate uh or the the not exactly initiate but the person who's going to be crowned is often put through ritual humiliation and they're reduced to a kind of ritual object they're kind of led around uh they they can't talk you know and even even in the british coronation the monarch doesn't say nothing they're just brought in it's the it's the archbishop the priestly figure who anoints them with oil they're treated like an object before they're then allowed to actually take up power and become the ruler and and so uh i think that in trying to account for why people go through these weird elaborate rituals he ends up i think hitting on something that's very clarifying which is that you don't have to think of people as naturally egalitarian or naturally hierarchical there there are values and there's attachment and attraction to both and a lot of the stuff that societies do is about trying to to do both and to mediate and transition between them right and i mean what's odd is in a way i think that as a sort of evaluative framework helps make sense of a lot of their evidence more effectively than they make sense of it in other words yeah (laughs) partly because as you've said they they sort of you know they um despite presenting a lot of evidence that would would support that kind of larger thesis you know which might might pertain to something like human nature as well as human culture um it you know it, it ends up being clear that they they think you know again in terms of these freedoms that you know these freedoms are primary and therefore whatever imposes on them is some kind of um artificial mm-hmm. kind of secondary yeah. imposition right and that yeah. you know and and that ultimately just seems um odd insofar as you know that they also in in some parts of their argument kind of want us to be able to see um you know, for example, they they want to counteract the kind of noble savage notion of hunter gatherers as being necessarily these kind of egalitarian horizontal societies, and and allow us to imagine them as as having their own rigid hierarchies. Um, so you know, they don't want to argue that in that sense that one is primary to the other, but then but then it seems like they kind of do, right? So so it yeah, sort of well, restores know- something like that myth. Yeah, they may not exactly say one is more natural than the other, but they certainly make it clear that they prefer one to the other, right? And and there is like like I mentioned this weird talk about sort of essence, the human essence is to be political, is to be a free thinking, free acting political actor, right? So um they yeah, they this is one of these philosophical points where they they, they never quite clarify exactly what they're position is right yeah so we've been going on for a while uh perhaps we should wrap up but do you have any uh final final remarks about this um just that you know i think uh it's a valuable book and it was it's sort of ripe the situation was ripe, i guess because there is so much more that we're learning about prehistory and about societies without writing. And a lot of it does go against received assumptions. So uh, I think that they 
they kind of took advantage of that lack of a new narrative, a new mythology. Um, but as you said, there are, <laughs> there are all kinds of problems and biases and limitations in it too. And uh, I would just say, you know, thanks for having so many questions and letting me go off. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> no, thank you. Repeatedly. And yeah, it's it, as I, I mean, as I suspected, um, it's been a, it's been a great conversation. And again, I think, you know, I, I thought of you in relation to this book because of the way you frame your podcast, but, but particularly because of, I mean, some of my favorite episodes of yours are these myth of the month episodes where you've sort of, um, take, you know, you've sort of taken on a lot of, uh, of major assumptions, um, about things like, um, capitalism, um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's always a very salutary, uh, approach. And I think, you know, I, I would encourage those of my listeners who are listening to this to check out Sam's podcast, Historians Planning, but, you know, particularly those episodes have stood out to me, um, as, as relevant to kind of the, you know, both the, the approach of this book, but also maybe some of the, the assumptions it makes that we're sort of trying to trouble. Yeah, yeah. And and thank you for always supporting historian explaining. And I love outsider theory. And I, I loved your discussion of Road to Wigan Pier, which is a, rec- a recent one. And as I tweeted, I said, Road to Wigan Pier by Orwell is the most important book for the 21st century. And I think some people thought I was being sarcastic. <laughs> and I'm actually, I'm actually not. It right Literally really, true. really is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, a pleasure and we should uh collaborate again on Great. some other some other interesting you know shared shared concern at some point. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Cool.